to Wendell's World in Sports. Let's be great. Let's be great. An entertaining and provocative look into the world of sports and beyond. Play our game. Right. Play, Play hard, but stay poised. Please feel free to go over to Apple iTunes and rate and review. Your feedback is welcome. Go rock this thing, huh? Love you, man. Go get it. And now, the host of the program from the Washington, D.C. metropolitan area, Wendell Wallace. Wendell's World in Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. A lot of things to get down on and discuss today in the world of sports. Namaste, wassalamu alaikum, my brothers and sisters. Shalom, konnichiwa. Bonjour, bonsoir, monsieur, mademoiselle. Je m'appelle Wendell Wallace, Wendell's World in Sports. Que pasa, mi amigos? Mi amo y Wendell Wallace. Wendell's World in Sports, so glad that you could be with us. A special dedication for those who are listening in Albany, New York. Special dedication for those listening to the podcast in Paris. Special dedication for those listening to the podcast in Germany. Special dedication for those listening to the podcast in Bangladesh, in Las Vegas, Nevada, in Las Vegas, New Mexico, in Los Angeles, California, in Vancouver, British Columbia, over there in Pakistan, over there in India, over there in Brazil. Brazil, everybody who's listening to this podcast in Sydney, Australia, Perth, Australia, what's happening? Special dedication, K-Possible, what's going on? Wendell's World of Sports, the podcast, so glad that you could be with us. Wendell Wallace here, giving you everything I got in terms of what's happening in the world of sports, talking about what's happening with the NFL, talking about what's happening in Major League Baseball, talking about what's happening in the NBA, talking about what's happening when it comes to the currency of what's happening, the present time. In the world of sports, recording this on a Wednesday afternoon. Going to see what I can do to put this down, to publish this before the start of AEW. So I can watch my man, see if my man Kenny Omega is going to be doing anything tonight. See what my man Chris Jericho and the Inner Circle have in store for the pineapple. What? Oh, I'm sorry. (laughs) For the pinnacle. So uh, all those things, want to get into all those things. I want to talk about a documentary that's been happening on a and I'll get to it a little bit later on in the podcast after I get most of the other sports out of the way. But I watched a um, <clears throat> I watched a two hour documentary, DVR'd it, watched it uh, this morning. The biography of Roddy Piper. For those who don't know who Roddy Piper is, he's one of the iconic wrestlers back in the uh, 1980s, and you know, back in the 1980s for me was my heyday in terms of watching wrestling. Now I watch it as entertainment. Watch it with a different pair of lens, different pair of perspective, different pair of eyes in terms of, you know, what the wrestling business is putting down. But, you know, Piper came along with Savage and the Junkyard Dog and Hogan and Ricky the Dragon Steamboat and the Ravishing One, uh, Rick Rude and Mr. Perfect, Kurt Henning and all those guys. So, you know, I uh, grew up on Roddy Piper. So to uh, watch his uh, documentary on A&E and uh, to see, you know, behind the scenes and everything he went through. And just the wrestling business, the way it was back then, compared to what it is today. One thing that I would love to do, as you know, when you listen to my podcast, I don't do too many interviews. You know, my ego, whatever you want to say. But uh, if I could interview one person or the best group of people to speak to as far as an interviewer is concerned, is are wrestlers. Because wrestlers don't hold back, man. You know, when you have... Athletes from other sports, NBA, Major League Baseball, hockey, football, even football, MSL, other leagues around the world, 
with football and even here in America with American football. You know, these guys are pretty guarded for the most part in some of the stuff they want to talk about, whether they like this guy, whether they like that teammate, whether they like that coach, whether they like that city, whether they like that organization, you know, uh, talking about a certain moment in time during a game or during their lives. You know, they can be very guarded and understandable, understandable. Wrestlers are an open book. If you ever YouTube anybody as far as wrestlers are concerned and they're giving any interview, interviews, which they call shoot interviews, and you want to hear, you know, the real, the real, no bullshit, no nonsense, no political talk, no mamsy pamsy, no, you know, trying to spin it the right way, none of that nonsense. If you want to hear the real, the real, and them talk about their careers, and them talk about their lives, and them talking about their families, and them talking about their feuds, and them talking about the organizations they've been in, and what their thoughts and feelings are about them, go listen to a wrestler talk about his life and his career. No holds barred, nothing is held back. So, you know, when you're getting these interviews, and you're getting... Um, these biographies on wrestlers, uh, they come right out and say it. You ask Greg Valentine a question, you ask uh, when he was still living, um, uh, you know, uh, who's the black guy? Butch Lewis, you ask him a question, man. You ask Tony Atlas a question when he was still living, Dwayne Johnson's father, Rocky Johnson, you ask him a question about what's happening, about what's going on, about who we liked, who we didn't like, who we liked working with, who we thought was a racist, who we thought was a jackass, who we thought was an asshole. You ask any of those guys, man, all of those guys, Triple H, any of those guys will sit there and uh, they'll give you the real. They ain't bullshitting. They ain't uh, nonsensical. Yes. So uh, I always enjoy listening to wrestlers and the biography about Roddy Piper is a must watch. And next Sunday or this Sunday coming up, they're going to have my favorite, the uh, macho man, Randy Savage, who try to get my hands on in terms of learning about his life and learning about what made him tick and learning about some of the stories about, uh, about Randy Savage. And, uh, he was my guy. I mean, because of my age, <laughs> because of my age in life, you know, I'll never have that type of relationship with a, a wrestler because I'm old. So I'm not fanboying. I'm not going to fanboy Kenny Omega. I'm not going to fanboy Roman Reigns. I'm not going to fanboy John Moxley. I'm not going to fanboy Big E Langston. I'm not going to fanboy any of those guys. I'm not going to fanboy Drew McIntyre, you know. But back in the day when I was just a young kid, I already liked Macho Man Randy Savage. And then when he brought out Miss Elizabeth and introduced him as his manager, and introduced her as his manager, well, that was it for me. It was like, yeah, as a 13, 14-year-old kid who saw Miss Elizabeth for the first time, it was like, yeah, okay, that's my favorite wrestler. That's my man. That's my guy, Randy Savage. And then the promos that he gave and the way that he browbeat her and all those type of things at that time, like, oh, yeah, that's my guy. You know, you can take your prayers and your vitamins and all that bullshit and Hulkamania, and you can shove it up your ass. I don't need that nonsense. You give me the million-dollar man Ted DiBiase. You give me Ricky the Dragon Steamboat. And you give me the macho man Randy Savage, and all is right in the world with me. Heel or face. Really didn't matter. I loved them. I loved them all, even though a very few times that uh, I don't think Ricky, Dra- Ricky uh, Steamboat ever turned heel, and I don't think that... Ted DiBiase ever turned face, but even the back and forth that the, uh, that the macho man had, I was always, that was my, that was my guy. That was my man. WrestleMania three, WrestleMania five, Randy Savage, the legend. So this upcoming Sunday night, looking forward to watching that documentary, Wendell's world and sports. I'm your host Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. So Maybe that's one of the reasons why I'm in such a hip, hip, hooray type of mood today. But, um, yeah, I want to get to uh, some stuff about the, um, 
about what's happening in the world of sports right now. We've got the NFL teams are starting to make trades to improve their squads. We're less than 24 hours in terms of when the NFL draft is going to be starting tomorrow. Looking forward to it. Looking for the time I'm going to be sitting in my hotel room up in Mesquite, Nevada, trying to find out exactly what the San Francisco 49ers are going to do, what the Atlanta Falcons are going to do, what the uh, Denver Broncos now are going to do now that they acquired Teddy Bridgewater, who's going to be making a play for Justin Fields, who's going to be making a move for Trey Lance, basically what, what the situation is always going to be. So there's some intrigue, there's some interest in this upcoming NFL draft. And it's also nice the fact that the quarterbacks are going to be at the central part of this play, of this drama, that they're going to be the, the stars of the show. So that's going to make for more intriguing type of uh, atmosphere and drama up there in Cleveland and me watching from my hotel room up here or up there in Mesquite tomorrow and, you know, exactly what's going to be happening, what's going to be going down. So as I mentioned before, you know, teams that are making trades to move, to do some things, uh, the Panthers, Carolina Panthers, as I mentioned before, trading Teddy Bridgewater to the Broncos for a six-round pick. The Panthers announced Wednesday today that they traded Bridgewater to uh, the Broncos for that six-round pick, and the Panthers are going to receive the number number 191 pick from the Broncos, and this is per ESPN. The Panthers will pay $7 million of Bridgewater's salary in 2021. So when you take a look at it, Teddy Bridgewater, who I remember coming into his final year at the University of Louisville over then with then-coach Charlie Strong, he was supposed to be the uh, <clears throat> he was supposed to be the guy that had a real real chance to uh, become the number one player drafted. It was interesting because what really catapulted him down downward in the draft is a couple of really bad pro days. I remember uh, his pro days were really bad. He was wearing gloves or something like that, or he wasn't throwing the deep ball well or something like that. But he came away from that pro day and his stock. Don't think that uh, by the time he had the pro day that he was the preemptive number one pick. But um, after that pro day, boy, he slid and he slid and he slid and he slid. Kind of underrated when you speak about quarterbacks who uh, were supposed to be drafted a certain number or at a certain spot. And then they fell, and then they fell, and then they fell. But the precipitous fall of Teddy Bridgewater in that draft was similar to Aaron Rodgers, was similar to Matt Leiner, was similar to Geno Smith, was similar to Brady Quinn, was similar to Dan Marino, was similar to uh, all those guys. So Bridgewater, I think he's around the same type of quarterback as an Alex Smith. I think Teddy Bridgewater is a pretty good game manager. I think that he could be a pretty nice bridge to what someone could consider a franchise quarterback. I think that he's a solid quarterback. I think Bridgewater is a solid pro. Um, but for the third time in his career, he's going to be traded. And he was traded to the Denver Broncos. So now, what does that mean for the Broncos moving forward here? Are they going to be drafting a quarterback at number nine? Are they going to be drafting an offensive lineman? I remember the general manager for the Broncos talking about, you know, what they're going to do with the number nine draft pick. There was also some scuttlebutt. There was also some rumors. There was also some talk about the Broncos moving back from the number nine pick. And the GM was like, no, we are not, uh, we were, we're open to all options. But, you know, in terms of whether we draft a quarterback or not, or what direction we're going to go in this draft, hey, we're going to give Drew Locke some competition. We want Drew Locke to have some competition. So, when the GM said that, maybe that was an inside reading between the lines that people were 
going to assume that whether it was Trey Lance or whether it was Justin Fields, whoever was at that at that pick or at that point when the Broncos were drafting number nine, that that would be the quarterback that they selected. But now with the acquisition of Teddy Bridgewater, what are we going to do? Where are we going to go? What's going to be happening? Adding even more intrigue to what the Denver Broncos are going to do. If you're going to go ahead and draft yourself, say, a Justin Fields, then does that mean that, you know what, it might be bye-bye time for Drew Locke because you have, as I mentioned before, the perfect bridge type of quarterback and Teddy Bridgewater, if you are going to be drafting somebody who is going to be the guy that you're looking to hold, to uh, give the reins to as far as being the quarterback is concerned, Teddy Bridgewater would be a good guy to start the first six, eight, ten games of the season, still have the Broncos be competent and competitive. And then if that time comes where you need to make that change, like the uh, Miami Dolphins did with Ryan Fitzpatrick, uh, holding the reins and doing well, but ultimately giving way to Tua Tunga Vailoa, even though the Miami Dolphins at that time were still in playoff position, if you're the Denver Broncos, it's the perfect scenario for you to go ahead, acquire Teddy Bridgewater, go ahead, draft yourself that quarterback, whether it's Lance or Justin Fields, and then as they're learning, as they're getting acclimated to the game, have Teddy, Brid have Teddy Bridgewater be that quarterback. And for Drew Locke, it's time to move on. Drew Locke really hadn't shown anything for the first three or three seasons of his NFL career. So, I mean, there, there's no relationship in terms of Drew Locke being the franchise quarterback of the Denver Broncos. And with John Elway still in that organization and still having a prominent role in that organization, you would think just to save his reputation in terms of drafting and building and creating a quarterback that he would go ahead and maybe be, maybe be uh, tantalized to get himself a quarterback with uh, the, with the skill level or the talent level of Justin Fields or with the potential that Trey Lance has. Because the only thing that John Elway has done as far as being the quarterback, you know, being the um, upper management for the Denver Broncos in terms of, well, I mean, what quarterback wouldn't want to play for the great John Elway? What quarterback wouldn't want to learn from the great John Elway? Well, I mean, you've had other quarterbacks come through outside of Peyton Manning who have tried it, didn't work. Whether it be first-round picks with Paxton Lynch, whether it be trades with Brock Osweiler, whether it would be numerous examples of quarterbacks trying to uh, get to the river of Elway so they can drink that water and become proficient as a franchise quarterback hasn't worked. So if I'm John Elway, don't know John Elway, never met John Elway, hasn't inter haven't interviewed John Elway, don't know the thoughts and feelings about John El Elway, don't know what John Elway's position of power is right now currently in the Denver Broncos organization, don't know how much sway he has, don't know how much say he has, don't know in terms of uh, what the impact relevance he has within that drafting room. So this might be out of his hands in terms of him wanting to get another shot to uh, acquire cultivate and uh, grow a franchise quarterback. We don't even know the position that John Elway has right now that even if they did draft themselves a quarterback, how much, uh, how much attention Elway is going to give to that quarterback, how much teaching that John Elway is going to give to that quarterback that's going to be drafted. So all of this is up in the air, but as I said before, with the Broncos now acquiring Bridgewater, at least for tomorrow, it does make for a little bit of intrigue. We all know what's going to be happening at number one with the Jacksonville Jaguars getting themselves a Trevor Lawrence. 
We all know we all know what's going to be happening with the number two pick in the New York Jets. Yes, Jets. They're going to be getting themselves a Zach, 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 Zach on the Wilson, Wilson, Wilson. Then number three, that's when the draft starts. That's when the ooh and the ah and I can't miss this. And everybody come, they're going to make the pick. And everybody be quiet as Roger Goodell says, with the number three pick, the San Francisco 49ers select Wendell Wallace. <laughs> Just kidding, bullshitting y'all. Mac Jones, can I say bullshit on the air? Fuck it, I make 44 mil. Mac Jones, quarterback out of Alabama. So, I mean, after that, you've got the um, Atlanta Falcons. What are you going to do? Pretty much... It's all about the quarterbacks, man. It's like, yeah, we can sit there with the um, we can sit there with the Cincinnati Bengals at number five and wring our hands and shake our hands and pull our hair out and say, are they going to draft Penny Sewell? <laughs> Doesn't really matter. It's all about the quarterback. So, you know, after Atlanta does what they do, whether they're going to draft one of the quarterbacks, whether they're going to select Kyle Pitts, whether they're going to select Jamar Chase, whoever, whatever direction that they go, you get a little bit of a break because number five, Cincinnati, don't need a quarterback. Number six, the Miami Dolphins don't need a quarterback. Number seven, Detroit Lions don't need a quarterback. Now, I'm going on the assumption here that no trades have happened, that the New England Patriots haven't moved in and swooped in and gotten themselves a draft spot to select themselves a quarterback, even though there has been rumors that the Patriots and others are looking to usurp the Dallas Cowboys with the number 10 pick and get that slot so they can go ahead and make it move. And, and, and really, I guess if you're the Patriots, I mean, yeah, it's out there. Yeah, you're going to put that on the table. Yeah, you're going to have that as in terms of a what if might happen. Maybe so. Let's see how it plays out. That We might have that scenario, scenario. So what's the, what's the, what the scenario? But really, for the Patriots, let's just say, for instance, we just go flat, skewly-doo, quarterback heavy, right? Jaguars pick Troy, uh, Trevor Lawrence. The New York Jets go with Jack Wilson. The San Francisco 49ers, fuck it, they go with Mac Jones. The Atlanta Falcons then pick Justin Fields, shocking the world. All right, does the do what? What incentive does the New England Patriots then have to say, well, are we going to try to move up to where the Detroit Lions are? Are we going to try to move up to where the Carolina Panthers are? Are we going to try to move up to where the Denver Broncos are? Are we going to try to move up? to where the Dallas Cowboys are? Are we going to even wait a little bit and try to move only to a number, the number 11 pick with the New York Giants to select ourselves a Trey Lance? We don't know what, uh, what the New England Patriots think about Trey Lance for real. And if you're Bill Belichick and you're 68 years old, and look, man, you know, you're on the back nine of your, of your career more than starting it, are we really going to be in the mood to say, you know what, if we, uh, if Justin Fields is off the board, if Mac, if Mac Jones is off the board, and of course, Trevor Lawrence and Zach Wilson are off the board, I mean, am I going to want to draft Trey Lance when it could be two to three years, four years maybe, before he becomes the quarterback we all think he can? If that's the thinking of Bill Belichick, Bill Belichick might be like, well, look, man, I'm really not interested in sticking around for the time when this guy gets really, really good. I need to win like now, next season, right right now-ish. I'm not really in the mood to be developing a quarterback who we think, who we might, who we hope can go ahead and uh, get the job done in a few years. Zach, uh, excuse me, unlike Zach Wilson or Trevor Lawrence, Trey Lance is not going to be the guy that's going to come in and automatically, you know, uh, live up to those expectations. I'm not even talking about because he played at North 
Dakota State. Who gives a damn about that? If you can play football, you can play football. There's been numerous examples of quarterbacks who have been drafted at the lower tier colleges who came in and did just fine in terms of having an NFL career. Ask Kurt Warner, ask Doug Williams, ask Steve McNair, ask Tony Romo, ask uh, Rich Gannon. Ask Joe Flacco. They'll tell you, you don't need to go to Alabama. You don't need to go to LSU. You don't need to be coached by Nick Saban. You don't need to be coached by Ryan Day. You don't need to be coached by Davo Sweeney to um, be a excellent quarterback, to be a Super Bowl winning quarterback, to be a quarterback with a Hall of Fame career. See Ben Roethlisberger, see Kurt Warner for a quarterback who by the fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth year is going to have generational wealth three or four times over. So they don't need to be doing that nonsense. If Trey Lance can play some football, Trey Lance can play some football. If I'm an organization, if I'm Josh McDaniel, let's just throw the Patriots into the discussion here because it seems like the Patriots are in the best position to get themselves into a position to draft themselves a quarterback. If I'm Josh McDaniels, doesn't my ego kind of say to myself, Man, I can turn this kid into something. Yeah, he might be inexperienced. Yeah, he might be raw. Yeah, he might be a little rusty. Yeah, he might be, you know, he might need to be uh, taught some things uh, in terms of playing the position at the pro level, just like every other fucking quarterback who's being drafted this year in the NFL will do. But uh, this guy's got the arm. This guy's got the talent. This guy's got the athleticism. This guy has the intelligence. I can work with this. You give me this raw piece of clay, and I'll mold this son of a bitch into a into a uh, all all pro. I'll mold this son of a gun into a franchise player. I'll mold this guy into uh, me being a extremely successful first offensive coordinator. Then when Belichick leaves, head coach for the New England Patriots. I can do this shit. Look, look what I did with Tom Brady. Look what I did with uh, some other quarterbacks that I had. You give me this guy? You give me these traits? You give me this talent? Yeah, I'll work it. Yeah, I'll mold it. Yeah, I'll fix it. Yeah, you give me that chicken shit, I'll turn that into chicken salad like Bobby Flay. So all those things are going to be coming into play when we're speaking about what's going to be happening in this draft. (sighs) <sighs> Wendell's World of Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace, so glad that you could be with us. What else is going on here? Oh, yeah, speaking about the NFL, the Kansas City, this might, um, the expiration, expiration date might have passed on this, but screw it, I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to sing this song anyway. The Kansas City used to be champions, announced Monday that the club had acquired offensive tackle Orlando Brown Jr. via the via a trade with the Baltimore Ravens. Kansas City traded this year's first-round pick, 31st overall, a third-round pick, the 94th overall pick, and a fourth-round pick, which which was 136, to the Ravens, along with the 2022 fifth-round pick in exchange for Brown, a second-round pick in 2021, which is the 58th overall pick, and a sixth-round pick in 2022. So, lesson learned by Andy Reid, coach of Kansas City, in terms of what they need to do, they have themselves a generational, great, awesome quarterback in Patrick Mahomes who can um, hide a lot of deficiencies. One thing that you can't hide is a terrible offensive line, which was exposed greatly, mightily, in the Super Bowl by the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Now, in all fairness to the guys who participated for Kansas City, as far as the offensive linemen is concerned, you had some guys that were out. They were juggling their offensive line. So Kansas City wasn't playing with that offensive line that they thought they were going to have uh, 
once the season started and progressed. But we are talking about the NFL here. We are talking about injuries here. So, hey, man, don't want to hear that shit. It's a performance-laden, it's a performance-based type of league, and the offensive line of Kansas City didn't get it done. So because of that, Kansas City had made wholesale changes on their offensive line, let a couple of people go. Uh, Eric Fisher had to let him go. Mitchell Schwartz, Michael Schwartz, had, excuse me, had to let him go. So Kansas City is coming in with an entire new offensive line to protect Patrick Mahomes and getting themselves someone like Orlando Brown Jr., who can easily make that move to the left, left tackle position, is going to uh, only increase the greatness of Patrick Mahomes, who is doing quite well after off-season toe surgery. So there you go for Kansas City. Reloading for another run with uh, their minds and goals and hearts set on reclaiming that championship so they can turn on Wendell's world of sports. So Patrick Mahomes and and uh, Tyreek Hill and Travis Kelsey and Andy Reid and Eric Bieniemy and all those guys can turn on my podcast and hear me go, the Kansas City defending champions, and they all go, woo! Champions, Wendell's World of Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Hey, my Washington football team, my Washington Snyderskins, my Washington uh, team is uh, making some moves along that offensive line. Very good. They went ahead and they swapped uh, late round picks with Miami to bring Eric Flowers back, who's only 27 years old with the number nine pick overall in the 2015 draft by the Miami Dolphins. He played for the Giants from 2015 to 18, and has since played for Jacksonville, Washington, and Atlanta. So the Snyderskins are doing everything that they can to uh, beef up that offensive line. We all know that the defensive line is there. We all know that as far as defense is concerned in the NFC least, they do have the uh, best defense and one of the more potentially awesome defenses uh, so far. Uh, moving forward in the NFL. Now, with the um, defense pretty much situated, uh, with that defensive front and every, and everything else, now let's start building what we can build along the offense, which would start, of course, well, it would be great if we could start with a quarterback, but since we're not going to be in that position unless they're going to reach for a Kyle Trask or they're going to reach for a Kellen Mond or something like that, that the um, – Washington football team take care of their weaknesses along the offensive line and then move on from there if you can't get that quarterback that you feel can be that guy moving forward. Wendell's World in Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. I'm going to even today's podcast speak about what's happening in the NBA. Playoffs are right around the corner. I want to talk about the team. I want to talk about my team. I want to talk about my hometown team. I want to talk about my Washington Wizards. Moving down the line, when speaking on my podcast, I'm going to mention the Washington Wizards, how proud I am of those guys. But yet and still, kind of in the same boat as the New York Knicks, in terms of, man, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm glad that um, Washington's making this move. They've won, or they did win eight in a row before they gave up 146 against the San Antonio Spurs. Oh, but I forgot, it was in overtime. Never mind, their defense is stellar. <laughs> so um, they had won eight in a row, moved themselves into position as far as the playoffs are concerned. Westbrook playing great. Beal playing great. Daniel Gafford, who knew? Um, Scotty Brooks, 
coaching well. Uh, the move, as I mentioned before, to get Gafford, nice job, Tommy Shepard. Um, you know, overcoming injuries, Thomas, Thomas Bryant lost earlier in the season. Denny Abia, he's out. Davis Bertans finally playing himself into shape. So the uh, Wiz, overcoming COVID issues at the beginning of the uh, season. Westbrook overcoming his COVID, which lingered, I think, in some um, meandering injuries for him to come back and do as well as he's been doing, especially in the month of April. Great job for the Wiz. I'm happy. I'm proud. Wonderful. They beat some pretty good teams. They beat the Lakers, even though without LeBron. Did they beat the Lakers with LeBron? Yeah, they beat the Lakers without LeBron. I don't. Did they? I don't know. I don't know. It was a while ago. But I know they won at the uh, Staples Center. They beat uh, Steph and the Golden State Warriors, held him under 30 points, which was a fantastic achievement. I don't care if those guys, speaking about the Golden State Warriors, ran out of gas. I don't care. They had come off a pretty, you know, decent, not pretty, a really good win emotionally and physically the evening before against the Philadelphia 76ers within a span of 48 hours. I don't care about any, any of that. They still went out there and played. Curry was absolutely terrible shooting-wise, and the Wizards got the job done. So, you know, it's not like the Washington Wizards during this eight-game winning streak has beaten the Minnesota Timberwolves three times, the Orlando Magic three times, and uh, I don't know, man, screw it. And the uh, and another and the, the Chicago Bulls once or twice without Zach Levine. I mean, they've been playing some really good basketball and been beating some pretty good teams. But, damn, man, I'm just thinking to myself, all right, if the Wizards... I'm all, I'm all about, let me tell you what I'm all about. I'm all about love, peace, unity, harmony, everybody's coming together, kumbaya, all those good things. And I do love me some uh, beautiful females, especially if they're black or Asian. But let me tell you what I'm also um, feeling and dealing with when it, comes to, um, when it comes to my sports and my sports teams. I either want us to be challenging for a championship Give up the talent level that is going to be challenging for a championship. Or I either want us to be really sorry and really horrible. Or at least have foundational pieces to where we're moving forward. If we're going to start at the bottom, let's keep moving our way up, 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 up. Getting better, improving. What I can't stand, what bothers me the most is meandering. I'm not interested if I'm a Washington, me being a Washington Wizards fan, I'm not interested in first round playoffs. I'm not interested in just making the playoffs. Same thing with my Washington football team. We won the NFC East and then we made the playoffs. Well, big fucking deal. What does that mean? We lost to Tampa Bay and might have uh, lost the opportunity to draft ourselves a quarterback. Well, so what did last what did last season mean for real with the Washington football team? We won the NFC Least with a seven and nine record. Hey. Are we any closer to Tampa Bay? Are we any closer to Kansas City? Are we any closer to winning the Super Bowl? Really, with Ryan Fitzpatrick, that's going to be our answer at the quarterback? So a first-round playoff exit to the Tampa Bay Buccaneers and our reward moving forward now is Ryan Fitzpatrick? Well, you speak about experience and you speak about the situation. Man, what the, what kind of experience can you gain in terms of playing in a playoff and then losing in the NFL? Especially when you don't have a quarterback. The team that the Washington football team is going to put out to win a championship, about 50, 60% of those guys on that roster that played in that playoff game, they're not going to even be on the squad. So what is the real meaning? Why? To give Chase Young that taste? To give Jonathan Allen that taste? I mean, come on, man. And that's the same thing now with the Wiz. Hey, you know what? 
We're in hunt. We're in the hunt. We're in the tenth seed. But man, we're what seven, six games under five hundred. Again, I'm not saying that you know everybody should. I'm not saying that everybody should be fired. I, I appreciate the Wizards not packing it in or not tanking. I do. I do. I really do. But you know, in the long term, it's like. And I made this point before when we made the trade for Russell Westbrook. It's like, well, you know, the Wizards aren't really interested in, you know, building a championship squad. They're just interested in, a, in appealing, appeasing Bradley Beal and getting in the playoffs. So we won't, so we won't uh, bolt and ask for a trade when he becomes a free agent. That's all that move was. And this is all what this recent deal is. All right, we get in the playoff playing game and then we lose. Season's over and we miss an opportunity to uh, draft ourselves a top five, top six uh, player in the NBA draft. I'm not saying that we would have got definitely won the lottery, so we could have picked Kate Cunningham. I'm not saying that we would have been fortunate enough to be the second pick or the third pick or the fourth pick or the fifth pick, so we can, so we could get ourselves a player. And that draft to start building forward. I'm not saying that, but I mean, when everything is all said and done, hey, we made the playoffs. Hey! If Rudy Hachimura being your third best player, the guy that's going to, uh, you're going to be banking on for a team that's going to be competing for championships, not winning championships, but competing for championships, competing for the Eastern Conference Finals, competing with the Milwaukee Bucks, competing with the New Jersey, uh, New Jersey, with the New York uh, Nets, competing with the Philadelphia 76ers. What are we doing here? Who do we got? Where are we going? We've got Russell Westbrook, cool, 32 years old, but, you know, because of the uh, contract, kind of hamstrung there. we got Bradley Beal, elite player. There we go, something to work with. 27 years old, leading the league in scoring, fantastic. That's something that we can work with. But after that, what do we got? Who do we got? Who are we relying on? Who does Philadelphia? Who does Brooklyn? Who does Milwaukee? Who does Boston? Who does any of these teams that are, I shouldn't even mention Boston, they're struggling. But any of the elite teams in the Eastern Conference, outside of Westbrook, in Beal, who else on our team did they look and they go, ooh, boy, we have to play them in the playoffs. I mean, we might do something with Beal and Westbrook, but ooh, what are we, what are we going to do with Denny Avia? What are we going to do with Rudy Hachimura? What are we going to do with Ish Smith? What are we going to do with Alex Lynn? What are we going to do? I mean, with uh, come on, man. So for me, I'm not interested in making the playoffs and, like, I give a damn, right? I don't own the team. But for me, personally, it's like, okay, we make the playoffs, hip, hip, hooray, or we get into the position to uh, make the playoffs, hip, hip, hooray, but then we don't make it or then we lose. We get our asses handed to us by Philadelphia or Brooklyn. All right, the morning after that, what do we do? What are we looking at? Where are we going? What can we do to make this team better? What positions, what avenues are we going to go down? What flights are we going to take to Promiseville? What Uber rides are we going to take to Championshipville? What are we going to do? Where are we going to go? How are we going to do that? And uh, I just don't see it as of right now. So, again, I'm going to talk a little bit about <laughs> I said I was going to talk a little bit about my Washington Wizards. I'm going to talk about that in the uh, upcoming segments. And I also want to talk about Russell Westbrook. Now, let me tell you something, man. You know... I don't know who, I mean, Russell Westbrook is a, I wouldn't call him a guarded individual because he's not, he's not a nomad. I mean, he's not, you know, but, uh, you know, Russell Westbrook cherishes his privacy, doesn't want anybody stepping into that space that he's cultivated for his family and his wife and his children. But man, I would love to say, Russ, 
man, you know what? You, you should be in the movies, man. If I had the ability, the acting, or excuse me, had the directing and writing ability of an Antoine Fuqua or a Spike Lee, as I said it before on my Twitter account, I would go ahead and I would create a badass Jim Brown in the 60s type of uh, character, Superfly type of character, you know, a badass. And I would have Russell Westbrook star in it, man. And I would be like, Russ, for all of these uh, scenes that you're going to be in, just pretend when you're speaking to these folks that the person who's the antagonist, the person that you're talking to is a reporter and he just asks you a really stupid question. So the way I want you to read this line is the same tone, the same attitude that a stupid ass reporter asking you a stupid ass question. I would love it. I would love it. Russell Westbrook would be a badass superfly uh superhero or he would be the greatest of villains the guy I mean, I just, I just keep that basketball demeanor and there's so much room that we could work with i'm telling you man russ would be an awesome he would be awesome in the movies man i'm telling you shit if you can uh if you can make broke king woodbine an actor and what anybody can act except for me so i'm going to be speaking about russell will russell uh, westbrook and the art of the triple double and why he's getting disrespected for the triple double. So I'm going to uh I want to talk about that and I want to end the podcast today. Something that happened. I'm gonna go off the grid in terms of sports that are concerned. Again, fuck right again. Wendell's world and sports, biatch. So the ending of this podcast, something that happened. I've talked about it before in my previous podcast. I don't remember if it was the one no, I think it was two podcasts before or something like that. But we're always speaking about, you know, what can we do? What can happen? Remember with the Derek Chauvin trial when he was found guilty on all counts and we ask, you know, are we going to be moving closer toward justice? Are we going to be moving closer, closer toward police reform? Are we going to be moving closer to black folks getting true justice and equality and not being stereotyped and not being taken advantage of and not having our civil rights being disrespected and trampled on by these domestic terrorists known as police? more domestic terrorists than there are peace officers. The scariest thing, the biggest threat to uh, black folks, brown folks, is not other black folks and brown folks in Chicago or in LA or DC or West Las Vegas or any other place. The biggest threat for black folks in this country where it's a blue uniform and for the most part has white skin and, a, and is a male are we ever going to get past that? Are we ever going to learn from that? Is there ever going to be a unifying situation where things start to get better? Well, something happened a year ago, which is now being brought to the light concerning police uh, policing in this country that uh, if it starts happening in these situations a lot more, then I guarantee, guarantee that police reform across the board will happen. I'll tell you what that is at the end of the podcast when I'm done speaking about everything which is happening, which is going down in the world of sports. All right? You good? You good? You hanging in there? You want to hear some music? You want to jam a little bit? You want to bob your head a little bit? You want to uh, twist, the, twist the hips a little bit? You want to get down a little bit? I do. So, uh... Let me go ahead and book and I'll get right back to you.
Wendell's World in Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. A lot of things to discuss and get down on today in the world of sports. Major League Baseball, people talk about the greatest rivalry in the game being the Boston Red Sox and the New York Yankees. And for over the large portion of the history of the game, that would be a true statement. The Yankees and the Red Sox have put on some memorable type of series and moments. And of course, the curse of the Bambino and all that bullshit. But uh, into the lore of the game used to be America's game. But we have a new sheriff in town. We have a new team in town. It's called the LA Dodgers and the San Diego Padres. They have now usurped the Yankees and the Red Sox as having the best uh, rivalry in that sport. Interesting series this past weekend. Through 68 innings, the Padres and the Dodgers, or the 68 innings that they played so far this season. This was the second series this past weekend, the second series between the Padres and the Dodgers. In the 68 innings, the Dodgers have led at the end of 25 of the uh, innings. The Padres have led at the end of 22, and the teams were tied for 21. The teams have played 68 innings and were separated by 2-1 runs or fewer in 61 of them. And for 124 of the 120, uh, 220 played appearances after the sixth inning in the seven games, the score between the Dodgers and the Padres was either tied or the tying run was at the plate or on base. Series finale on Sunday was absolutely crazy. San Diego won an extra innings 8-7 to seven after trailing 7-1 to one going into the 7th. They scored two runs in each of the next three innings to force the game into extras. Probably wouldn't have happened, hopefully, if this was a playoff game or a game of greater consequence later on in the season because Dustin May was rolling. Why you would take him out and then put in David Price during this portion of the season, I understand why. But came back to uh, bite him. But a game in April is not going to be the determining factor in terms of the Dodgers doing well, even though they're scuffing right now, even though they're stumbling right now, at the 162 flipping games, which means that they're going to have streaks like they had before, and they're going to have streaks like they're on right now in terms of losing is concerned. But I'm quite sure the streaks of them winning are going to far surpass the streaks of losing. They're still the best team in baseball. They're still the deepest team in baseball. Um, I don't know, you know, sometimes with some of these losing streaks, sometimes you can kind of get back into a little bit of reality and thought process in terms of, you know, the, the thoughts of breaking 116 and the most wins in the season by the Seattle Mariners, that goes by the wayside, or the 114 wins by the New York Stankies in 1998, that goes by the wayside. But um, for the most part, man, just win the damn World Series. That's all you have to do. Whether you win it winning 82 games or 157, really doesn't matter. They don't give you any extra bling. They don't give you any extra bonus from the uh, World Series in terms of, uh, you know, getting paid more if you win a certain amount of games. So the whole deal is to get themselves ready for the run that they're going to be making in the playoffs. And if you have to sacrifice a game like you did on Sunday by pulling Dustin May, who, again, was just rolling, bringing in David Price, who needed to get some work in long season. We don't know when uh, or if David Price is going to be asked to be that fifth starter or that fourth starter, depending upon the injury situation with the uh, Dodgers starting pitching, that, you know, you want to get him ready. You want to get him uh, some action and all those type of things. And even with David Price in that situation really doesn't uh, foresee, I think, any long-term issues if Price has to be in the starting rotation for a little bit because of injury. So the Padres came back and won 
in extra innings, 8-7, everybody's, it is kind of awkward and it is kind of weird. The start of the um, extra innings that you had a guy on second base. But, you know, as much and as wonderful and as awesome as that game was for the diehards, that game on Sunday between Los Angeles and San Diego, that thing lasted over five fucking hours. No, no. Unless you're on a tennis match on grass or anything other than clay, anything, any sporting event over three and a half hours is no. No, there's no football game out there that went longer than three and a half hours where you could say, boy, that was awesome. Boy, that was wonderful. I don't care, man. Bring it all the way back to the 1971 AFC playoffs between Kansas City and Miami. Bring it all the way back to um, the Raiders and the uh, Baltimore Colts back in 1977 where they played into the sixth, uh, sixth period. I don't care. Pull out the greatest football games in NFL history. None of them are going over three and a half hours. Why? Because nothing, nothing, no sporting event, again, outside of a tennis match on hard or grass courts is worth a damn going over three and a half hours. I don't give a damn if it's basketball, hockey, baseball, football, I mean, boxing, come on. But, I mean, there's just nothing out there. So five hours on a Sunday night. So when the game was finally resolved, how many people outside of the Western time zone were watching that game? Not too many. Why? Because those folks, for the most part, had to go to flipping work, I would assume. So, no, it's just, and I spoke about it. I'm not going to speak about it again. If you want to hear my thoughts and feelings about speeding up the game of baseball, go back to... The podcast that I did recently and talk about, you know what, we need to have a pitch count, get the batters back into the batter's box, stop meandering around the uh, stop meandering around the mound, stop adjusting your crotch, stop playing with your hat, stop playing with your Johnson, stop playing with your batting gloves, stop staring at the at the bat and calming down and doing all those type of things. Get in the batter's box and swing. Pitcher, stay on the mound and pitch. Not gonna go there. Not gonna do it. Don't jive me into it. But in any event, it was a good game. It was a good game. And again, anything to speed up the game, man, I'm all for it. There was even some talk possibly about, you know what, in certain situations with games, I would say this. Let's say, for instance, if a game goes into, you don't want to put in the clock. You don't, you don't want to put in do if the game lasts three hours. If when it gets to three hours, who's ever winning by that point, then, you know, what the hell? That's it. Game over. We don't want to go to ties. <laughs> Baseball in 2021. Win, lose, and ties. I mean, you don't want to do it. You don't want to do that nonsense either. But, man, you guys got to be cognizant of speeding up the game somehow, some way. And it's the umpire's uh, deal to say, come on, man, it's the middle of July and we're in Texas and I'm wearing all of this gear. Stop fucking meandering around. Get your ass in the batter's box. Hey, pitcher, pitch. It's 95 degrees outside with humidity up my ass. And I got a fucking, I got all of this gear on. Throw the fucking ball. <laughs> that would That would be me. So... You know, something something's gotta be something's gotta be done about that. But 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 moving back toward the uh game itself. It was a great game. It was a great game. Again, too long, but it was a great game. And just imagine how long it would have been if 
they didn't have each inning the runner being at second base. So it made for some drama. L.A. had a chance to uh, win the game in the 10th with the bases loaded and one out, but Tim Hill of the Padres struck out uh, Clayton Kershaw and rookie D.J. Peters. Moving on, there we go. So San Diego has won for the, won for the fourth time in the last five matchups against Los Angeles, which took the first two games at Petco Park last weekend. So the teams don't meet again until June 21st, the June 23rd at Petco Park. And they played nine games. They played nine games from... August 24th to September 30th. Ooh, it would be sweet. Ooh, it would be nice to uh, go to Dodger Stadium and watch those games. That was one of my bucket list moments that my man David Brody gave me the opportunity to um, swipe off the list in terms of uh, things I want to do before I get out of here and go up and get reunited with my dad and other other folks is to uh, go watch a Dodgers game at Dodger Stadium. So went there, watched, and, and, and of all things, had the opportunity a few years ago not only to go watch Dodgers game at Dodger Stadium. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, David Brody. Uh, don't don't uh, think the two are in common. But I also went to the game Dodgers and the Mets when Clayton Kershaw was on the mound. Double treat. The first time at a stadium that I've always wanted to go to and watch a baseball game and watch Clayton Kershaw pitch, it was awesome. And the female talent surrounding me and David to watch that game, me and Brody, just added more, uh, just added more of a high five, yeah, 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 to the whole experience. So, in terms of swiping that off my list, in terms of uh, ballparks that I want to go to, check, and it was uh, it exceeded my expectations. Again, thank you very much for that opportunity, David Brody. So I have Fenway Park. I still want to go to, and I still have Wrigley Field. So I have crossed crossed off my list, Dodger Stadium and Yankee Stadium. So Fenway Park and Wrigley Field are the only two that I have left. But the thing is is that I'm out here in Vegas, would love to possibly go down and watch a uh, Dodgers-Padres game. But uh, we'll see. Let's see if I'm still living during that time. Wendell's World of Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. So the Padres, hey, man, you know, they're – they're meandering in terms of records are concerned. They're doing great against LA, but they've gone nine and eight against all non-Dodger opponents. Now, what signifies these games? What signifies these series long-term this season between LA and San Diego? Not, not much, not much. I'm not deducing that, oh, the, the Padres are for real and all this kind of stuff. Or, you know, now that they've taken, you know, X amount of games before the end of uh, April, that somehow, some way we should uh, be rethinking the goals and expectations of the San Diego Padres. Number one, the goals and expectations for the San Diego Padres are to win the World Series. So if they're doing well against the team that has the best chance among the prognosticators and the experts to win or get to the World Series, then there's no need to change, rearrange any of the expectations from the San Diego Padres. But, you know, are they a real threat based on what we saw this past weekend, what they did down at Pepco Park? We don't know, man. We have absolutely no idea what's going to be happening four to five months from now when these two teams are presumably, assumedly, in the playoffs. So we'll get into all that when that happens. We'll know a lot more about the nine times that they play from August 24th to September 30th, more than we did 
this past weekend. Wendell's World in Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. They have to start in pitching to get it done. But then again, you know, Blake Snell and, um, oh, 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 my goodness, the Asian pitcher. Damn it, damn it, damn it. Whose name I'm forgetting right now. I'll remember it later. But uh, those two, yeah, strong pitchers. No doubt, Hugh, Dar- Hugh Darvish. Jesus. Hugh Darvish and um, Blake Snell. Yeah. I mean, there we go. But are they going to be able to beat the foursome, the fivesome that uh, L.A. can throw on, on a consistent basis? The only thing that would be a little bit nerve-wrackingly for the Dodgers is, of course, the uh, bullpen and the closer. You know, what, what's, what's going to be about that uh, situation? So, you know, we'll see. We'll see what's going down. Wendell's World of Sports. I'm your host. Wendell Wallace, so glad that you could be with us. Ken Lee Jansen, the key to see if the Dodgers can get where they need to be. Speaking of baseball still, hey man, Fernando Tatis Jr. Few people in sports, in the game of baseball, you stop what you're doing when they come to the plate. For me, it started with Kirby Puckett. For me, it started with even before him, Lyman Bostock. That's right, that's a name you don't remember too much. Lyman Bostock and Rock Carew. When they were with the Minnesota Twins, then Kirby Puckett, then moved on to uh, Dave Winfield types and Don Mattingly types, and then moved on to Barry Bonds, my all-time favorite Major League Baseball player. Then, you know, moved on to uh, Miguel Cabrera and others, Tony Gwynn and others. You know, you stop what you're doing because when you come to the plate, not only is it excitement, it's also art in terms of being able to hit a 98-mile-per-hour fastball with movement, be able to hit a curve or a splitter, or to be able to hit someone of the excellence and someone of the talent of a of a Clayton Kershaw or something like that. So when you have a really great pitching matchup and you have guys who can hit, you have great players coming to the plate, you definitely want to stop what you're doing, change the channel, and watch that confrontation. Fernando Tatis Jr. is... For me, that guy right now, Mike Trout is another one. Shohei Otani is another one. But for me, Tim Anderson for the Chicago White Sox is another one. But for me right now, Fernando Tatis is probably at the top of the list. And when they asked all the players, for the most part, the Freddie Freemans and the Juan Sotos of the world, who's the most exciting player in baseball, they all said Fernando Tatis Jr. And uh, yeah, I can't disagree with them. So my question to all the seam heads out there, yes, talking to you. Can Fernando Tatis Jr. do for Major League Baseball? The game, the sport of Major League Baseball. Can Tatis Jr. do for his sport what Peyton Manning did for the NFL? What uh, LeBron or KD or Chris Paul and others have done for the NBA? In terms of superstars being that brand, for superstars... Bringing the game to the masses of those who might not be following the game of baseball. Who might not be following the game of baseball closely, like for me right now. Like for those who are lukewarm sports fans. For the guy who has a job, hanging out with the family, hanging out with his kids, doing some other things. He's got his YouTube, got his Netflix, got his other shows. What can Fernando Tatis be that guy? To where that guy who on Friday night, where it's usually movie night, has to kind of maybe have to think about it a little bit, 
change plans a little bit because you know what? A National League game is going to be on and the San Diego Padres are going to be on and Fernando Tatis is going to be on. And even though I have really no interest, especially on a Friday night when it's movie night with my kids and my wife and hanging out after a hard week of work, that you know what? Normally that's the plan, but because of Fernando Tatis and the opportunity to watch him, we're either going to have to cancel, rearrange, or do something else on a Friday night at that time, at that time period when Fernando Tatis is out. You didn't have to be a football fan. You didn't have to be a football fanatic. You didn't have to own a fantasy team. You didn't have to have a parlay or you didn't have to have a bet on a game to want to watch Peyton Manning play football. Whether it was Sunday afternoon, Sunday night, Monday night, Thursday night, Saturday afternoon, whatever. You wanted to watch Peyton Manning. And how did a lot of people, how did some people who might be lukewarm football fans, who might be a football fan, who might be just in tune to his team, and then that's it. How many of those, what percentage of those were first introduced to Peyton Manning because of a commercial that they saw? That was their first inkling. That was their first recollection. That was their first itching to maybe to want to see, as far as also what the accomplishments are concerned, but... You know, how much did Peyton Manning going outside of the realm of football? I mean, you couldn't watch an NFL game without Peyton Manning being on a commercial every 15 seconds. You know, you couldn't watch an NBA game or you couldn't watch another sporting event with Peyton Manning without seeing a Peyton Manning um, a commercial. Can Fernando Tatis be that guy? Can Fernando Tatis be MLB's LeBron? Can Fernando Tatis be the... Major League Baseball's Peyton Manning or Drew Brees. Can Fernando Tatis be that guy with the importance of his shoe deal or his shoe brand? Can Fernando Tatis make headlines, make news, make uh, people stand up and go, hmm, in terms of um, something outside of the game of baseball? If he signs a lucrative deal with a Nike or an Adidas or with some other type of uh, gear or apparel. If there's something that we can do to build a brand for Fernando Tatis Jr. Because what he's showing right now at the age of 23 is that, you know what? I think he wants it. I think he wants to be that guy. I think Bryce Harper wanted to be that guy. And in a lot of instances, the, 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 the game itself dropped the ball on Bryce Harper, who at the age of 16 was on the cover of Sports Illustrated talking about the next one or the LeBron of NBA or the LeBron of Major League Baseball. And I think Harper embraced that. Harper wanted that. But I don't know if Major League Baseball got behind him enough. I don't know then because of that, that the other industries, the other advertisers, Madison, Madison Avenue and others didn't get behind him like they should. Come on, man, we're talking about baseball here. Baseball, hot dogs, apple pie, Chevrolet, baby. We're talking about the oldest, the grandest, the most recognizable sport for the last, I don't know, ever since football came around. Besides that, the most recognizable sport on this planet. If you really think about it, outside of maybe cricket, outside of football, and maybe outside of basketball, hey, man, baseball's right there. And for a league, again, I keep talking about it. I keep harping about it. I'm going to keep saying it. I'm going to shove it down your throats. I don't give a damn. Shrug your shoulders. Stick up your middle finger. Roll your eyes at me. I don't give a damn. Call me all kinds of names except for the N-word. I don't give a damn. I'm going to say this to y'all. The foundation that baseball had set in terms of the importance of the fabric of this country has been woven, has been taken apart, has been crumbling down 
for the last 40 or 50 years, and now you're letting now you're letting basketball players take the take the lead. Now you're letting football players take the lead. Now you're letting people from other sports be more visible than a game that produced Babe Ruth, a game that produced Mickey Mantle, a game that produced Willie Mays, a game that produced Jackie Robinson, a game that produced Hank Aaron, a game that produced Duke Snyder, a game that produced Bob Gibson, a game that produced Bob Feller. You're letting a LeBron James, you're letting a Kevin Durant, you're letting a Chris Paul supersede athletes in those sports with a rich foundation. The NBA didn't really do anything as far as importance is concerned in this country until Magic and Bird showed up. Shit, in the 70s, the NBA was a fucking joke. The NBA was in clear disarray and dysfunction. The New York Knicks had too many black players. In fact, the New York Knickerbockers were called the New York Knickerbockers. Back in those days, Willis Reed was the coach. The team was too black for New York. They didn't like that. Too many of the players were smoking dope. Too many of the players were doing drugs. Too many of the players were uh, just doing the wrong thing. The league was underwater. The NBA finals games were being tape delayed. There was talk about maybe teams folding because of the lack of interest. PR was at an all-time low. Visibility was at an all-time level, and then you had two guys named Magic Johnson and Larry Bird come out of Indiana State and Michigan State, play in the 1979 NCAA championship game, Magic Johnson's Michigan State squad versus Larry Bird's Indiana State squad, 75-64, most watched basketball game in the, in, a, in, a, in the longest, uplifted the NCAA tournament uplifted the game of college basketball. They brought that talent. They brought that intrigue. They brought that skill. They brought everything to the NBA game. So resuscitated it, saved it, vitalized it, revitalized it, super, you know, built a platform for a Michael Jordan to come along and take it to heights unforeseen and keep it in good enough shape to where the Steph Currys, to where the LeBron James, to where the other superstar, to Kevin Durant, can come out there and build their brands. That should be baseball. Why am I talking about a sport that 40 years ago no one gave a shit about and is now as far as their players doing work, their players building brands, their players being crossover superstars, their players being recognized in the public in terms of outside of the realm of the sport that they play? Why is it LeBron James and not Mike Trout? Why is it Kevin Durant and not Juan Soto? Why is it these players and not some of the great players that we have in Major League Baseball right now? Fernando Tatis is that guy. Fernando Tatis is that player. What are you going to do? How are you going to help in Major League Baseball? Because he wants it. He's got he's got charisma. He's got swag. He's got the look. He's got the game. He can speak English. He's he's got that swag that the younger you're talking about wanting to get the uh, young folks into the game of baseball. Man, you got a perfect guy right now in Fernando Tatis. He might be the swaggiest athlete we've got. When you're speaking about football, baseball, basketball, hockey. He's got more swag than LeBron. He's got more swag than Zion. He's got more swag than uh, Giannis. Name a superstar in the NBA right now and tell me he has more swag than Fernando Tatis Jr. No. No, 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 no. Kevin Durant doesn't. Chris Paul doesn't. No one in the NBA who players build their brands, you know, on a consistent basis. None of those guys have the tools, I think, or no one, none of those guys have the charisma 
or that flair or that swag that Fernando Tatis Jr. has. My goodness gracious, Major League Baseball, you've got yourself a gem right now. There ain't nobody in the NFL that has the swag, that has the look, that I think can attract the young players the, 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 or the young kids like Fernando Tatis Jr. And at 22, 23 years old, man, this guy could be doing this for the next 15 to 18 years. Maybe not act the same way that he's doing now because you hope that at the age of 31, 34, 37 that he's more mature and this, that, and the other. But man, this guy could be the foundation. This guy could be what Magic and Bird did for the NBA to introduce someone like a Michael Jordan who then introduced someone like a Kobe Bryant who then introduced someone like a LeBron James. This could be Fernando Tatis Jr. We tried. I thought it was going to be Bryce Harper. That fell through. Mike Trout doesn't want any part of it. Unfortunately, because we're talking about one of the all-time greats playing baseball in Southern California in the second biggest media market in the country. And he doesn't want any part of it. You don't see him on commercials. You don't see him on advertisements. You don't see him on, on promos for the most part. Fernando Tatis, I believe, is that guy, wants to be that guy. And when you watch him play baseball, you can't take your eyes off of him. That's what you got, man. What are you going to do, baseball? What are you going to do? Wendell's World in Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. 158 games Fernando Tatis Jr. has played. 46 home runs. 31 stolen bases. Scored 126 runs in 158 games. Mm, 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 mm. Power, speed. He's Cal Ripken on steroids, and I use that term steroids shouldn't have maybe used that when it comes to baseball but he's like the next generation between I don't know man this guy's like Cal Ripken Alex Rodriguez uh the other shortstop who played for the New York Yankees whose name I forgot I mean this is a guy who just has that type of he can go down to that type of that type of stratosphere when everything is all said and done, man, you have yourself a guy who could be a generational talent and want to tell the world that he could be a generational talent and he can have an influence like nobody else in the game of baseball. When was the last player, who was the last player in the game of baseball who really, you know, took that responsibility, who wanted that responsibility to say that, you know what, I'm going to bring the game to the masses. I want to be great, and I want to be that crossover superstar. I want to be that public figure. I want to be the guy where the attention falls on me. I want to give it to me. Who was the last guy? Who was the last superstar that we can name that was a LeBron James for his sport, that was a Peyton Manning for his sport, that was a Steph Curry for his sport? Who? Name me one. Wasn't Barry Bonds. Everybody hated that guy, except for me and folks in San Francisco. Who was the last great player? I mean, great player who wanted those responsibilities. Has there ever been? Since Babe Ruth? Shit. Maybe Mickey Mantle? Shit. Black players, black players unfortunately didn't have the opportunity to, uh, to have that, uh, opportunity shall we say so who was it who was it in the 80s who was it in the 90s who was that guy I always loved the anti-heroes my two favorite players um over the past 20 30 years have been <laughs> Barry Bonds and Albert Bell <laughs> those are my two guys yeah I was one of those Albert Bell sycophants man whatever Albert did I was always the guy who could sit there and be like no 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 
Nope. It was always funny. Albert Bell, I, I, and I, I think because of Albert Bell's um, surly attitude, his um, meanness, his misunderstood demeanor that he brought, that uh, I think that sometimes he got shit on him, poured on him that wasn't deserved. I mean, you know, Albert Bell would uh, strike out very the very few times, especially in the 90s where, you know, you speak about 94 or 96, one of those years where he should have won the MVP and they gave it to Mo Vaughn because the Major League Baseball writers were assholes and uh, Mo Vaughn was a great guy for the Boston Red Sox and, you know, Albert Bell would rather spit on a, uh, spit on a guy than uh, give him a decent interview. So because of that, Mo Vaughn was the, I believe it was 94, that team in Cleveland that was just fucking stacked. And they lost to the Braves because uh, Glavin or somebody, Smoltz or somebody, threw a, threw a gem in uh, one of the, in the World Series game, the deciding World Series game. But, um, you know, Albert Bell, Albert Bell would strike out. He would, uh, you know, go in the back and, you know, he'd hit something out of frustration with a baseball bat and people would be talking about, man, Albert Bell is fucking nuts. Meanwhile, Paul fucking O'Neill, every time he got out, would throw a tantrum like a two-year-old, would go in the back and break up the uh, thermometer and do all this stupid shit, throw shit around and swing baseball bats and everything. And those same people who were calling Albert Bell an asshole and said there's something wrong with him and he needs anger management, those same jackasses who are saying that about Albert Bell would then say the do you know then, then watch Paul O'Neill do the same thing with the Yankees and say, boy, that guy a competitor. Boy, you know, you want someone like that on your team because, you know, here's a guy who wants to win, and when he doesn't succeed, he gets frustrated, and not by, I tell you, what a competitor. What a this, that, and the other. Fuck you. So it was always one of those deals. But, you know, Albert Bell had that opportunity, but he was like, no, nah, I don't think so. Barry Bonds had that opportunity to be the face of the league and be one of the more popular players in sports, playing baseball, playing for Major League Baseball, and he turned it down. So you got Fernando Tatis Jr. Who wants it? Who wants it? Did you see the way he celebrated that home run off of Trevor Bauer? I loved it. Loved it. Absolutely love it. I don't give a fuck about Bob Costas. I don't give a damn about George Will. I don't give a damn about all those other folks who were speaking how wonderful they love baseball and how the great game of baseball is to them and what it means to them and all, the, all those old farts in the Ken Burns um, documentary about baseball, which was beyond awesome. But all those old farts, and I'm one of them now, I'm old and I'm a fart, but all these guys who want to wax poetically about the game of baseball and go on and on and bloviate about that bullshit, get them the fuck out of here. I don't give a damn about these jackasses who want to sit there in the Bill Jameses of the world and talk about numbers and talk about stats and all this type of stuff and we have to preserve the stats and everything like that. Get the fuck out of here. Get out. Get out. Love you. Historians, great Wonderful. Don't call us. I'll call you. When we want to talk about the Ty Cobb era, when we want to talk about the Cy Young era, when we want to talk about the Roger Hornsby era, when we want to talk about the 27 Yankees, when we want to talk about Hank Greenberg, when we want to talk about Bob Feller, when we want to talk about anything before 1941 or somewhere around 1941, 1950, 1955, I'll go to the Bob Costas, I'll go to the Bill James, I'll go to the uh, George Wills, I'll go to those guys. Because their wisdom is priceless. Their knowledge is unsurpassed. And in that realm, and in that situation, yes, you need those sages. You need those experts. You need those historians. You need their wisdom. You need their intelligence. Because if you don't know what was happening 
before, you don't know what's happening now and you don't know what's going to be happening in the future. So those guys, Tim Kirchens, the Butcher Olneys, the, uh, th those guys who always want to bring up some shit from the 1970s and the 60s and the 50s and the 40s and the 30s, the Bob Costas of the world. Yes, we need them. We definitely need them. And yes, we want to hear from this, them. Yes, we want to hear what they have to say about baseball. But geez, <laughs> sometimes it's just like <clears throat> you reach your limit and then that's it. How many times people have told me that, right? You've reached your, you reach your limit. No, but seriously, when, when it comes to bat flips and when it comes to having fun and when it comes to all of these things, I don't want to hear about the Mickey Mantles of the world. I don't want to hear about the old traditions and all that bullshit. I don't want to hear it. I don't want to hear that nonsense. I want to see these guys celebrate. It's a new age, man. It's a new world that we're living in. It ain't, the, it ain't leave it the beaver, all right? It ain't that. It's a whole new age. This ain't the Partridge family. This ain't friends. This ain't the Brady Bunch where you get to yell and you know, tell your parents to go to hell and then run up the stairs and Carol and Tom look at each other and say, what are we going to do with him? What are we going to do with Peter? He just told us to go fuck himself. Um, so, I mean, it's a whole different situation now, man. Whole different situation. Now, we, this, this world... We want to see that swag. We love the swag. We love the attitude. We love it. We absolutely love it. It's fun. The celebration of the game. Love it. Celebrating a home run. Well, you don't do that. You put your head down when you hit the home run and you march around the bases and then you don't show any emotion because God forbid you want to show up the pitcher. We don't do that. That's not the right way to play the game. Fuck you. Get the fuck out of here. Celebrate after hitting a home run. Celebrate. Baseball players should celebrate hitting a home run like football players and teams celebrate after scoring a touchdown. Fernando Tatis, when you hit a home run, I want you to salsa around the bases. We'll give you 30 seconds or 45 seconds to run around the bases so, you know, you don't go too out of control. But you've got 45 seconds to run around the bases. From home, the first, the second, the third, and then the home, as long as you stay within the base path, I don't give a damn what you do. Do cartwheels around the bases. Moonwalk around the bases. James Brown around the bases. I don't give a damn. Michael Jackson around the bases. Hell, when they hit a home run, those guys should play their music. And when they're rounding the bases, go for it, man. Do the merengue. Do the cha-cha. Do the Charleston. I don't give a damn what you do. As long as you can do it within 45 seconds, go for it. Go for it. That's fun. I love it. And if the pitcher dares to retaliate and he hits him, throw his ass out of the game and then suspend him for 25 fucking games without pay. Major League Baseball players should be celebrating hitting a home run like a football player celebrates scoring a goal. Instead of the guy going, go! I want to hear an announcer go, home run! As he's running around the bases. Get get that, that guy, what is it, Enos Cantor or whatever the guy's name was, who goes, go get him to do a baseball game and let him do something. Just celebrate. You hit a home run as a celebration. If, you're, if you go to the plate 600 times and you hit 20 to 25 home runs, that's considered really good. So hitting a baseball out of the park is a call for celebration, man. That's awesome. You should celebrate. And if I'm a pitcher, I don't know why these pitchers would get Madison Bumgarner and all these guys. I don't know why they would get bent out of shape. I'll tell you one thing. If I'm a pitcher and every time someone hits a home run off me, they're just running around the base like it's no big deal. I'm like, damn. So 
man, all of a sudden now hitting a home run off me means nothing. I'm huh? like, yeah, whatever. Oh, uh, yeah, Wendell's pitching. Oh, smack, hit a home run. Oh, yeah, whatever. Oh, no big deal there. But shit, if I'm a pitcher, I'm like, you know what? If you hit a home run off me, you sit, you should celebrate. Because I'm so fucking great. How many home runs do I give up? Very few. And how many home, how many times have you hit a home run off me? Hardly ever. So, you know what? Your lucky ass hit a home run off me? You should go ahead and celebrate. Because guess what? That's something that's probably never going to happen again. Or because I'm so great, that shit rarely happens. So when something like that rarely happens, you should celebrate. That's the way the pitcher's mentality should be. Yeah, man. Hey, you know what? Like 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 college basketball coaches with their with their programs. When the day comes when teams beat us on the road and fans don't rush the court, that's a kind of a telltale sign. It's almost a compliment when we go on the road and a team beats us and the crowd goes nuts and they run on the court in a regular season game and the opposing players go nuts and they celebrate and all this kind of stuff. They did something that they probably didn't think they were capable of doing because guess what? Beating us is a big fucking deal. It doesn't happen too much. So yeah, go ahead and celebrate because guess what? For the next five years, we're going to whip your ass every time we play you. That should be the same thing with the pitcher. This guy's batting 176 off me with two home runs and 85 plate appearances. Yeah, he should be celebrating when he hits a home run. Doesn't happen too often. So, man, I don't know with all these, with all these guys, man. Celebrate baseball cele- players. Celebrate scoring runs like football players and teams celebrate first downs and turnovers, man. Celebrate. And don't worry about the get-off-my-lawn types. Don't worry about the octogenarians. Don't worry about the old fellows who went to the ballpark because his father took him to see Mickey Mantle with a moving, glorious experience. And, you know, when I was growing up, me and my dad, uh, you know, we didn't see eye-to-eye on a lot of things. And he was a cold, and he was a distant man, and he was a provider for my family. I knew that he loved me, but he was a guy who really didn't say that because, you know, he came from the old school where men really didn't say that to each other. So growing up in the household, we really didn't have too much in common. But... I remember the day we went to Yankee Stadium and we went and we saw Mickey Mantle. And it was that time, it was that time period where me and my dad, I don't think we've ever been closer during that time. And for the first time in my life, I felt the love from my dad and it was precious and it was something that I'll never forget. And it catapulted me to being the man that I am today. And so fuck football, baseball and all that other bullshit. uh, Basketball and football, fuck all those other sports. Baseball is the only thing that could do that. I'm Bob Costas. You know, uh, I was walking down the street and, you know, all these, you know, all these stories that uh, Billy Crystal was telling. I mean, jeez. Love you. Wonderful. Awesome. But new times. New times. I want to hear from some young folks, man. I want to hear some folks in their 30s and their 40s. That's what I want to hear from in terms of, you know, in the NBA, you've got Charles, who's in the 50s. But, you know, Charles and Kenny and Shaq, I mean, those guys are fun. Those guys are fun. That's why inside the NBA is so fun. Ernie Johnson, he's great. He's fun. It's all about fun. It's all about entertainment. It's all about laughing at yourselves. It's all about... Baseball doesn't have that. Baseball is lacking that, shall I say. It just is. And in a game where you have an opportunity because the game is so slow to have some fun, to do some things. Come on, man. Let's just see what we can do to spice up the game a little bit. And Fernando Tatis Jr., is that guy. So what are we going to do, baseball? Where are we going with this baseball? Shohei Otani. Man, the man that might, might not be able to speak um, English, he might never be 
able to speak English fluently enough to be on commercials or to be have speaking uh, commercials where he's speaking or something like that. He might not ever have the opportunities that Cliff, Chris, Paul have with Jake from State Farm or, 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 or those type of things. But man, why are we not? Here's a guy who is the modern day fucking Babe Ruth, possibly, in terms, in terms of his ability to pitch and hit. I guess the Texas Rangers on Monday, Otani was the starting pitcher as well as um, batting. Last time someone did that, June 13th, 1921, his name was, um, oh man, uh, the fat guy who used to play for the Yankees, number three behind, uh, ahead of Gehrig. Uh, Babe Ruth, that's right. Babe Ruth, Bo Ruth, Bob Ruth, Babe fucking Ruth. Man, when somebody is doing something that the last person to do it was George Herman Babe Ruth, man, put that shit out everywhere. <laughs> Everywhere, I don't care if he is Asian and can't speak English. I don't give a damn. Have trans, has trans, uh, uh, interpreter will travel. Come on, man. Let's get him out there. Let's get him out there. So, baseball. What are we going to do? Baseball. Where are we going? Put some color into the game, man. Put some urban. Put some style. Put some flavor. Put some hot sauce. Put some salsa into the game, baby. Let's do it. Come on, man. Let's not just, uh, you know, everybody... Everybody have fun. Everybody have fun tonight. Everybody Fernando Tatis Jr. tonight. Baseball. You got a gem. Baseball. You have a gift. Don't blow it. Please. Speed up your game. And embrace the emergence of Fernando Tatis Jr. Let it be known to everybody. That we've got someone with some swag. We got someone that your kids are gonna want to follow. We got someone who's going to deviate from the LeBron James worship and the Zion Williams worship and the NFL player worship. We got a guy here in Fernando Tatis Jr. who could elevate the game of baseball to heights it hasn't seen in a long, long, long time. Fernando Tatis Jr. is down with it. Baseball. Can you handle it? Ready for war, Joe? How you wanna blow these spots? I know these dirty cops that'll get us in if we murder some wop. Hop in your helmet, the punishes ready. Meet me and Vito's with noodles, we do this do while he's slurping spaghetti. Everybody kiss the fucking floor, Joe. We crack, fuck them all if they move. Noodle, shoot that fucking whore. Dead in the middle of little, literally little. Did we know that we riddle to middle? Man, who didn't do diddly? Here to be a cold day and how the day I take it now. Make no mistake, for real, I wouldn't hesitate to kill. I'm still a fat one that you love to hate. Catch you at your mother's waist, smack you, then I whack you with my structure, I rub your face with the earth and curse your family's children like Amity feeling, drill the nerves in your cavity filling. Insanity's building a pavilion in my civilian. It can't be the energy that humanity's filling. I'm filling without remorse, who's willing to out your boss forever and take all the chatter like child support. I support punning anything he does, anything he loves. A brother from another mother sent for the above. A dark nigga just like me, one of the best might be. Even better, leaving niggas kneeling on their right knee. Spike Lee couldn't paint a better picture. You small change, I'm blowing out Wendell's World in Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Talking about what's happening, what's going down in the world of sports. 
just finished my day. Of course, being out here in Clark County, substituting for the, being a substitute for the school district. Um, the day is over. It's wonderful. On Wednesdays, the entire district, the schools have to be cleaned because of COVID. So we're, we are on this uh, deal where it's like you have co- cohort A, cohort, cohort B, cohort C. Cohort C is the kids are all online. And then cohort A, you know, they go to school in the morning on Mondays and Tuesday. And then cohort B, they go to school in the mornings on Thursday and Friday. And then cohort A in the afternoons, they take their classes online at home. And then cohort, you know, it's that type of deal. So basically out here, Mondays and Tuesdays, Thursdays and Fridays, the teachers are in the building for the two classes in terms of, you know, for the kids who are, coming into school to take classes. A lot of the time, we're only speaking about four or five or six kids. They're all on their Chromebooks, and uh, you know the lesson is being given through the Chromebook. But then after that, those two days in the afternoon, um, you know, there's nobody there. So, you know, the kids come online, you tell them what to do, and then it's like, you know, party fever, I'm going to party down. So it's a situation like that. Then on the Wednesdays, it's a matter of, look, man, I get out of my bed. School starts at 7. I get out of my bed around 6.35. I walk about 15 seconds to my office, turn on the uh, computer, have on my shorts, have on my T-shirt, put up my college shirt, say what's up to the kids. This is what the assignment is, this, that, and the other. Go ahead and do the roll, and then I'm done. I am good to go. Take myself off camera, take myself off uh, microphone and it's like let me go ahead and watch a little television let me go ahead and fix a little breakfast let me go ahead and just relax let me go ahead and read what's going on in the world let me go ahead and work on my podcast let me go ahead and work on my podcasting it's all of those things so Wednesdays are absolutely awesome and you're done early high school's out here for the most part go anywhere between 115, most of them are at 125, and then you have a few that go to 145, some go to 2 o'clock. So for the most part out here, you know, for the online, you're out of here before noon. Some, you have a couple of hour breaks, it's awesome. So it kind of, I understand the kids need to come back to school, I'm all for the kids going back to school, the kids need to go back to school, learning purposes, the kids need to go back to school, for the teachers themselves, they need to go back to school because it's better for them as far as teaching the kids, for the kids that are learning, all of those things, no doubt about it, no question about it, the sooner we get back to the students going back into the classrooms, even if it were, even if it means wearing a mask, which is probably going to mean I'm all for it. We need to go ahead and get done with all of that. We need to go ahead and do that. That being said, boy, is it going to be an adjustment, and boy, is it going to be for the first couple of days like, eh, eh, back in school, huh? Eh, back to having um, 25, 30 kids and 35 kids in the classroom, huh? Eh, eh. Back to uh, waking up at uh, 5.15 in the morning, huh? <sighs> Driving across town, huh? <sighs> all righty. All righty. But like I said, it needs to be done, and we need to get that done very quickly. I will I always tell the kids, don't worry, I'll live. Wendell's World in Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. So as I was speaking before in the opening segment, the first segment, whatever segment you want to call this, I was speaking about the NBA. I was speaking about my Washington Wizards. I was speaking about the great play that they've, the streak that they've been on, eight and two in their last ten, 
eight-game winning streak until it was stopped by the San Antonio Spurs. Currently in 10th place in the Eastern Conference. Eight games in a row. Bradley Beal, Eastern Conference Player of the Week for the fourth time in his career. 4-0 this past week. Beal's averaging 31 points, six rebounds, three assists. Second in the league in scoring right behind Stephen Curry. He's averaging about 30 points a game. It's about maybe a point, point one, point two behind Curry. So, hey, man, you know, a great game, a solid game. Could put him right back in the league. He's tied for second with, with the most most 40-point games. So, Beal has been great, man. I was, I remember the time when Beal signed that five-year, $128 million contract or some, some, some nonsense like that. Because if you remember, and if you don't, let me uh, remember it for you. His first few years in the NBA, he was battling injuries. And he was battling like foot and knee injuries and some such like that to where, you know, it was a situation where this was a guy who, you know, for the rest of his career, we don't know if this guy's going to be able to play 82 games. We don't know if this guy's going to be able to play 75 games. We don't know if this guy's going to be able to play 72 games. This might be a guy who after a third or fourth year, the way these things were going with the injuries, he might be a guy that will not be able to play back-to-backs, who might not be able to play three or five games, that three games in about five days and all those type of things. So when the Wizards signed him to a max deal, like somewhere around five years, $128 million, they're speaking about, you know, he's a guy that is prone to injuries and durability. It was like, man, I don't, I, I don't know if this is a this is a good deal but now Bradley Beal I mean this guy outside of you know Giannis and Nikola Jokic and those guys I mean that next tier of players in terms of most valuable or should be considered MVP candidates Bradley Beal is right there and you're speaking about a guy where it was like well should Bradley Beal be traded should the Wizards be looking to trade Bradley Beal do you take a look at the market for him right now or you take a look at uh, what needs to be had if there was a situation that the Wiz were going to try to trade Bradley Beal, it'd be a situation where it'd be similar to uh, James Harden. It would be more than Jeru Holiday. It would be in the same stratosphere as James Harden because if you're speaking about a 27-year-old shooting guard who right now is playing at a near MVP level as far as statistics-wise, then yeah, man. I mean, you know, this is something where Bradley Beal, the Wizards playing the cards right if they wanted to, which in all intent and purposes, Tommy Shepard's like, no, Beal's going to uh, spend his entire career with uh, the Wiz. He's our main main deal. He's our main guy, and we're going to treat him like a superstar, this, that, and the other. All right. But if they wanted to get rid of him, I don't even know if there's a trade possible out there right now if you take a look at all the teams. And maybe that's also one of the reasons why the Wizards are like, yeah, you know what, we're going to hold on to him because right now there's ain't there's no way – even with the Wizards in complete control, even if you said, okay, Wiz, what do you want from us? Who out there outside of Brooklyn where you could say, yeah, I want Kyrie or I want KD or I want JD, uh, James Harden or a combination of those two and draft picks, maybe a Landry Shamit. That's the starting point right now, the way Bradley Beal is playing. And you know Brooklyn's not going to do that deal. So realistically, what trade would be out there for the Washington Wizards even if they wanted to trade Bradley Beal. There is none. So he's been great. He's been awesome. And then you got Russell Westbrook. Age 32. Bad contract and all. He's still averaging almost 22 points a game. 11 rebounds and 11 assists. Leading the league in 29 triple doubles. And he's on course. Speaking of, of uh, Westbrook. To average more than 10 rebounds per game. 
for the fourth time in five seasons. It's amazing. This is a guy who got traded from Oklahoma City, who we spent the bulk of his career with so far, then to the Houston Rockets for one year, and now over to the Washington Wizards. Even through all that change, through change of um, scenery and organizations, this guy is still at six foot three, going to average ten rebounds per game, four out of his last five seasons. And when people were speaking about Westbrook, or when Westbrook was speaking about uh, the triple doubles and playing hard. And doing all those type of things. Because you, you've, you've heard that for years. The fact that Westbrook, how many years now? Is he going to be is he, is he going to be averaging a triple-double? So because of that, you have some pundits and experts talking about, well, you know, now the triple-double is no big deal. And Russell Westbrook is the perfect example of how devalued the triple-double has been. And Westbrook being a stat stuffer and... He really doesn't care, and you know he's making a conscious effort to uh, average a, t- a triple double. So because of that, that's not re- he's not really averaging a true triple double. I mean, whatever that means. I mean, yeah, he's averaging a triple double. Not because he wants to average a triple double. It's not coming naturally. It becomes he's going onto the court saying, you know, even before winning and team success, I need to get my triple doubles. Sounds foolish to me. Sounds ridiculous to me. And of course, they point they point to the warts of his game to try to strengthen their argument about how Russell Westbrook averaging a triple double is no big deal, or really not all the hubbub that is being made out to be. Well, after the game the other night against the Spurs, this is what Russell Westbrook had to say about again triple doubles and playing hard. The thing is, is that for me, I take pride, like I said. Um, like I say, every single night and leaving it all on the floor. Um, I honestly believe there is no player like myself. Um, and if people want to take it for granted, sorry for them. Um, but I, I'm pretty sure if everybody could do it, they'll do it. Um, and I honestly make sure that I impact the game in many ways. Um, every night, defending, rebounding, passing assisting, uh, whatever it is that my team needs for me to be able to win. Um, and that's what I do. I, I really don't, honestly, Cass, I don't care what nobody thinks about it. Or I don't care if somebody thinks it is, um, you know, whatever they want to call it, stat padding or um, not useful. I mean, you know, I think it's very interesting is that it's not useful now that I'm doing it, you know, Um it wasn't useful when Magic and Oscar and those guys were doing it. Uh, but now that I do it and it looks easy, uh, this shit ain't easy, though. i tell you that. It ain't easy. I take a lot of pride in my preparation. I take a lot of pride in I'm taking care of my body. I take a lot of pride in competing every night. I don't take nights off. Um, I don't treat the game. Um, so with that, um, you know, I, I'm okay with the results of going out and competing. And if, if it was a triple-double, then shit, why not? That's my motto. Why not continue to keep going? Love is competitive fire, competitive fire, fire, and uh, yeah, he's right about that. Because as I mentioned before, I mean, I, I've never understood the he's padding his stats to try to get a triple double. Do you know how many players, if they could go out and get a triple double, would actually go ahead and do that? 
I mean, this is not a situation where you have guys going, yeah, you know what, I could get 20, 10, and 10, or I could go ahead and get 28 points, 17 rebounds, and 15 assists. I could go ahead and do that, but I'm more into winning, or I'm not really into that because it would be padding my stats. Do you realize how hard that is? Do you realize at six foot three how impressive that is for Westbrook? Now, look, I understand, you know what, when you're speaking about devaluing the triple-double, I get it because the user rate for a lot of these guys is through the roof. Like, for instance, once Luka Dantich hits his prime, this is a guy who's probably going to average like 32, 13, and 11 because everything runs through him. Everything. It starts and finishes with Luka Dantich, either off a pass or a score. He creates everything. The way that the Dallas Mavericks are constituted right now, yeah, Luka Doncic has a hand in everything. So, yeah, of course, he's going to be a guy, and also because he's a basketball genius savant and he's great. The fact that, yeah, when he really starts to uh, get going, when he's going to be 24, 25 years old, yeah, we're going to see Doncic putting up triple doubles that are just going to be ridiculous. He's going to be averaging triple doubles that are just going to be ridiculous. And Dallas is going to be great because of their ownership and their coach if they decide to, uh, if Rick Carlisle decides to stay around. But uh, because of the usage rate, you know, Westbrook has, if you watch him play, he has his hand on the ball in a lot of situations. He's a guy that's going to crash the boards. Here's a guy that sometimes is going to off-balance the floor because instead of getting back like a a point guard should, when a shot goes up, he's going to crash the boards. But um, yeah, you could take a look. And you know what? He's not the greatest shooter. You could take a look, and he's a horrific three-point shooter. You could take a look and point out all his warts to his game. You could take a look at the defensive miscues he has because he's gambling with throws all of the defense out of whack. You could take a look at his high turnover rate again because if you're going to uh, go ahead and uh, you know share the sugar, that, you know, sometimes it's going to spill on the floor. If you take a look at the point guards throughout history who averaged a lot of assists, Magic, Isaiah Thomas, John Stockton, Mark Jackson, and those guys, those guys, Steve Nash, those guys also had t- high turnover rates. Because when you have the ball in their hands as much as they did, and you're qualified or you're responsible for making so many things happen, then yeah, the spectacular, unbelievable thread-the-needle type passes that we see on the highlight films, it's not the only time those guys threw those passes during the game. Magic might have tried that pass five times during the game. Three of them might have worked. Two of them might have been intercepted. And then you just throw in two more other normal turnovers throughout the game. Magic's going to have 15 assists and four turnovers to go around to go along with 18 points and, and uh, 12 rebounds. So, you know, you, you want to go ahead and point out the warts of Russell Westbrook, because of his high turnover rate, yeah, five, six, sometimes seven turnovers accompanied by a triple-double might take some of the gleam, might take some of the shine off of what he did. But you know what? If you're going to tell somebody, and you know what? Westbrook is going to give you 32, 20, and 15 tonight. Oh, but he's also going to have eight turnovers, or he's also going to have seven turnovers. You would take that. Damn right you would take that. And you can't. You cannot discount or disrespect how hard he plays every single night. You can't do that. And you can't discount or you can't take into effect 
or you can't make the assumption because he's mean to the uh, media sometimes, or he has an attitude, or he can be surly. He can be difficult at times because he's not blowing kisses and trying to jump in front of every microphone and every camera. You can't then equate that to, well, he's a difficult person to coach, or he's a bad teammate. Multiple players who have been teammates of Russell Westbrook, uh, Westbrook has praised him in terms of how great of a teammate that he is. I remember Doug McDermott talking about when he was drafted by Oklahoma City or when he was with Oklahoma City and Westbrook was there, the fact that he was having some trouble, I think with pick and rolls or something like that, but he was having a little bit of trouble with the offense or something like that. Westbrook said, don't worry about it. Come in early to the gym with me. I'll go ahead and I'll help you out. I will go ahead and I will dedicate some of the free time that I have, not to be with my wife, not to be with my kids, not to be with my family members. I will go ahead to this gym and help you out, either a rookie at that time or a young player. Victor Oladipo talked about how much he learned when he was a teammate of Westbrook for a year in Oklahoma City, how he learned how hard he had to work and the dedication that you have to have in the game to become a great player. And he learned that through Russell Westbrook. And he learned how to be a leader. This is, of course, before Oladipo messed up his knee. The one year that he had in, in uh, Indiana, where he was at the top of his game, speaking of Oladipo, he was speaking about how much he learned how to be a leader and a team leader and the face of the franchise and how to work hard and, and be dedicated to the game. He learned all that through Russell Westbrook. And that wasn't because Russell Westbrook wouldn't talk to him and he was just learning it from afar. I mean, this was something where Westbrook took the time out to teach him how to do that. And it's amazing. We speak, or the critics speak about Westbrook being selfish. He's a selfish player. He, he held back Kevin Durant. Remember in his younger days, he held back Kevin Durant when he was with Oklahoma City. You should have had Kevin Durant. Westbrook is shooting too much. He needed to have Kevin Durant shoot a lot more. He's taking away his shots. How many years did Kevin Durant lead the uh, NBA in scoring when Russell Westbrook was his teammate? What year did Kevin Durant win the MVP? Oh, that's right, when Russell Westbrook was his teammate. Oklahoma City Thunder, they made the NBA Finals even though losing to the Miami Heat when when, when Russell Westbrook was playing point guard. So, so what are we talking about here? What are we dealing with here? The year that Russell Westbrook won the MVP, the year that he averaged a triple-double the first time since 1961-62 when Oscar Robertson was the uh, last man to do it before Westbrook. Yeah, the Oklahoma City record was 45-37. and 37. But in the games where Westbrook had a triple-double and in the games where Westbrook didn't have a triple-double, the Oklahoma City record was tremendously skewed one way or the other. So when Westbrook had a triple-double in the game, most of the time, the Oklahoma City Thunder won. I don't have the complete one-loss record, but it was something very impressive. The games that Russell Westbrook didn't have a triple-double, the Oklahoma City Thunder record was below 500. So this was a responsibility where, you know what, Westbrook... Whether you're stat padding or you want a stat pad or you're selfish, you're doing all these things or not, if you don't, if you don't average a triple-double, record shows we don't win. So I don't, I, don't, I don't get it. I don't understand the hatred for, like I said, surly, hard to deal with, difficult, maybe, possibly. But uh, in terms of a guy who doesn't take days off because he's load-managing, doesn't cheat the game, 
plays as hard as he can, and at least with the expensive tickets that there is for an NBA basketball game, you know that whether it's the fourth game in five days, whether it's the end of a uh, Western Conference road trip, whether they're playing a team that absolutely sucks, whether the score, they're up by 40 or they're down by 40, we know, you know, that Russell Westbrook is going to give you everything that he has. He ain't going to slouch. He ain't going to take plays off. He ain't going to a lollygag. At least for a paying customer, at least I can appreciate him for that. So I, I the the deal with Russell Westbrook, I have no idea. Now, there was a story written by Tim Reynolds of the, in the Associated Press, which I read, and I'm going to give it to you here on Wendell's World and Sports, the podcast. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. Story written by Tim Reynolds of the Associated Press, where he was talking about the triple-double and how the triple-double had been devalued and maybe you know, one of the reasons why people aren't dancing in the street like Martha and the Vandellas or dancing in the ceiling, dancing on the ceiling like Lionel Richie is because um, of the way that the triple-doubles have been devalued. And he looked it up and he said there were only 18 triple-doubles league-wide for the 2011-2012 regular season. This season's total, in terms of triple-doubles are concerned, they've already topped 100. And that makes the fifth season in a row. So we're not speaking about, we haven't gotten to the point where someone's throwing a no-hitter in baseball is met with, oh yeah, that's nice. But as far as a triple-double is concerned, I mean, when Magic or when Kobe or when some other folks had a triple-double, it was ooh-ah-ooh-ah. Now it's like, okay. Now, now, now more folks are averaging triple-doubles that aren't of the quality, that aren't of the stature, that aren't of the greatness of a Magic Johnson. I mean, before, the only person who averaged a triple-double outside of the superstars like Magic was Fat, uh, Fats Lever of the Denver Nuggets. And people were talking about with him, well, with Doug Moe running that style of offense, which, which, which was fast break, which was get up a lot of shots, and you had Dan Issel and Alex English and those folks running up and down the court, shooting a lot of shots. Well, you're Lafayette Lever. Yeah, you're going to get a lot of opportunities at 6'3 to get rebounds and to at least get 10 points a game and to get 10, 11, point, uh, 10, 11 assists per game. Big flipping deal. But now, as I mentioned before, you have players that you never even heard of getting triple doubles multiple times. Or I shouldn't say you've never heard of, but now you're getting non-superstar NBA players getting three or four triple-doubles in a season. It's like, well, shit. That would be like... That would be like 13 number four starters during the baseball season getting no hitters. Like, eh. After a while, it's like, you get... You get... Uh, you get... Immune to it, or you get uh, mute to it. So, you know, you can speak about the faster play, which creating more possessions, more statistical opportunities... Restrictions on defenders. They've been trying to promote more freedom, more movement on offense. Players are more encouraged to shoot three-point shots, which means that long rebounds happen a lot more. Now you're speaking about three-on-two breaks where you have the shooter go to the corner, the shooter three-pointer, which lends itself to more rebounding opportunities. This is what Reynolds was talking about in the um, piece that he did about the three-point shot. So, you know, basically, it's like, well, you know, again, Westbrook has more opportunities to uh, get a triple-double. I'm sorry. When Oscar Robertson averaged his triple-double in the 1961-62 season, do you remember the statistical overflow 
that was happening, the statistical throw-up that was happening in the league, 1961-62, that was the year that Will Chamberlain averaged 50 points a game and scored 101 games. That was the year that Elgin Baylor averaged, I believe, 38 points per game and like 18 rebounds a game, playing only on the weekend because he was enlisted in the Army. There was a lot of statistical, like, incredible anomalies going on to where, yeah, Oscar Robertson averaging 30-something points a game, 14, 15 rebounds, 10, 11 assists per game. Take a look at the uh, take a look at the points per game during the 1961-62 season. And it was an eight-team league during that time. I think the lowest scoring team in the league was like at 112, 113 points a game. You had multiple teams that year averaging 124, 127, 128 points a game. How many shots do you think they were putting up during a game? So if you want to use the argument towards Russell Westbrook, his triple doubles being devalued or it's not that big of a deal because of the way that the game is played and the points that are being scored and the way defenders can defend people and the advent of the three-point shot and how important that's become. That, that might be fine and you can use that and you can make an argument out of that. But then again, if I'm sitting there also and I want to foolishly try to d- diminish what Oscar Robertson did in 1961-62, I can say, well, how many scoring opportunities, how many rebounding opportunities, how many assist opportunities do you think Oscar Robertson had in the league where the medium for scoring points was somewhere around 118? And you only had eight teams in that league. So you're speaking about opportunities to get triple-doubles, and Robertson at that time was playing, what, maybe over 40 minutes a game, averaging over 40 minutes a game? In a season where, again, you had Will Chamberlain scoring over 50. You had Walt Bellamy scoring over 30. I think the top five or six players in the NBA, as far as scoring-wise is concerned, were all over 30 points a game. So shots were being put up. A lot of shots were being put up, which meant for more opportunities to get assists, more opportunities to uh, score points, and a lot of opportunities to get rebounds. And Robertson was at 6'5", at that time, a really big guard at that time who was just a basketball player. He wasn't a shooting guard. He wasn't a point guard. He was listed as a point guard, but he'll tell you himself, he was a basketball player. He was a guard, not just a point or shooting. He could do both. But at that time, he had complete control of the offense, so he was the guy that was passing to set up the shot. He was the guy that had the ball in his hands to score. And he was the guy who crashed the glass and got himself rebounds at 6'5", which at that time was very big for a guard. So... You want to go ahead and start talking about diminishing Russell Westbrook, but then not do the same with Oscar Robertson. Yeah, I think that's uh, I think that's wrong. I think that's uh, bullheaded. Both Robertson and Westbrook, the accomplishments that they made in terms of triple doubles, should be celebrated. But you know, with the <laughs> with the uh, old guard, I mean, they're going to be complaining about everything. You know. You see these guys from the 70s or the 80s and 90s. You know, they want to badmouth LeBron. They want to badmouth Steph Curry. I mean, you, you hear all these old legends sometimes talking about, well, you know, if LeBron played in our league, yeah, I'm sorry, I'm quite sure. The way these guys, the way these guys are defending LeBron, he wouldn't get away with that in our league. Yeah, I know. Because a 6'8", 260-pound LeBron who would be able to play basketball like you guys play basketball with their physicality. If LeBron was able to play with the physicality that you guys were allowed to play with, yeah, LeBron James at 6'8", 260, yeah, no way could he have survived. Shit. Where a goon was somewhere around 6'9", 230. 
Like if you were like a Mark Ivoroni or a Kurt Rambis or one of those types or a Xavier McDaniel or a Cliff Levingston or something like that, those guys were about 6'6", 220, 225, that type of of size. Here is fucking LeBron James, a genetic freak, 6'8", 260. Yeah, Xavier McDaniel is going to do something with that. Yeah, Kurt Rambis is going to do something with that. Yeah, Cedric Maxwell is going to do something like th- with that. Yeah, Clement Johnson is going to do something with that. Give me a flipping break. Yeah, let, let's see Bill Lambeer try to do some bullshit what he did in the 80s with uh, LeBron James. Oh, and let's see LeBron James then. Could you imagine if LeBron James, again, as I mentioned before, could you imagine if LeBron James was allowed to use the physicality the way Bill Lambeer did? Every team that the uh, Cavaliers or any team that LeBron James would be playing on, half the other team would be in the hospital because LeBron would have broken something if he would have been able to play like the Detroit Pistons played. You know, Dennis Rodman talking this shit. Believe me, my man. I mean, you know, you thinking about Scottie Pippen? You think you, you you think you could have tried that when you were, when you were with the Pistons? You think that shit with Scottie Pippen that uh, you did at the end of Game Four when the Pistons? Dynasty ended? You think you would have been able to do that shit with LeBron James? Shit, get the fuck out of here. So, you know, guys made, you know, guys with Steph Curry. Well, Steph Curry wouldn't have gotten those type of jump shots when we were playing. We would have beat him up and done this, that, and the other. Yeah, I know. Yeah, you're right. Because you guys were so big and strong and physical. Yeah, how could Steph Curry survive in the league where, let me see here, Mark Price survived, Isaiah Thomas Survived. A lot of small guys who were skinny survived in the NBA when you guys were so mean and tough and vicious and physical. Not like the Manzi Pamsy of today's NBA. You're right. Stephen Curry is 6'3 and thick. No way he could have been able to get those shots off. Have you ever watched an NBA game from the 1980s? Have you ever watched how slow they play? You have, have you seen the athletes during that time? You're going to try to tell me that Steph Curry wouldn't have been able to do now or do back then what he does now? Come on, man. Come on, man. You know, get back in the house and stop yelling for folks to get off your lawn. Wendell's World in Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Let me end with this. Julius Irving, Dr. J. He didn't put LeBron in his all-time greatest team. (laughs) But this is the big deal. Why are we speaking about this? This is not a big deal. At the end of an interview with Yahoo Sports, they asked, you know, Julius to come up with his all-time greats. And Mr. Irving said, uh, at my first team is like Oscar Robertson and Jerry West. I got Will Chamberlain, Bill Russell, and Elgin Baylor. The second team, Magic, Michael, Larry, Carl Malone, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, those guys, they would be on my second team. And when he asked, wow, really? No uh, LeBron James, huh? He said, when you look at LeBron and anybody he sort of picks with him, he played with so many guys. He's the guy that had, who has led the charge in terms of super teams being put together. When he puts when he put together the team in Miami, he put together that team in Cleveland as well and put together a team in Los Angeles so he can pick his own team. I'm not going to pick his team. I'm going I'm I'm not saying nothing bad about LeBron. Well, you sort of did. I think you did. From, so what I'm getting with this is you're penalizing LeBron James because he couldn't win or he couldn't be great or he couldn't be as great as the guys that you picked on your first and second team if he didn't have the opportunity, if he didn't have the ability to 
go ahead and pick his own team or put together his own super team? Where do people get this narrative that LeBron James put together this team? Isn't it the GM's responsibility to put together a team? I mean, I think when a situation where it's like, okay, when LeBron said to Dwayne and Chris Bosh, wow, we should play together. And Chris Bosh is like, yeah, you know, I'm kind of getting tired of Toronto. I don't know why. And I'm looking for something else. And LeBron's like, yeah, I'm never going to win with Danny Ferry as my GM and Mike Brown as my coach. I'm tired of carrying Cleveland and I've been living in the Ohio area in the northwest, northeastern part of the country my entire life. So I'm kind of looking for a change and all those type of things. And this Olympic experience has just, you know, made me fall in love with the possibilities. Let's go get together and do this. With all of that being said, I mean, it wasn't like LeBron walked into Pat Riley's office or Miami Heat's office and said, oh, yeah, by the way, um, I'm coming to your squad and I'm bringing Chris Bosh with me. You called Dwayne Wade and this is how we're going to do things. No, it, did, it didn't come about that way. When LeBron went back to Cleveland, yeah, he was like, yeah, well, you know what? Kyrie is there. Awesome. Um, let's go ahead. I don't really need Andrew Wiggins. Let's trade him to Minnesota so I can get Kevin Love. Yeah, those things happen, but it wasn't again. Kyrie was already on the team, just like Dwayne Wade was already on the team with Miami. So, you know, I don't know how he picked those guys. I don't know how he picked Kyrie or Dwayne Wade when they were already on the team. And then a situation with Kevin Love and Chris Bosh, I mean, okay, that's fine. But, you know, Chris Bosh came over as a free agent. You had to make the trade for Kevin Love. Um, so I'm quite sure that when they were putting together the trade package to get Kevin Love, that LeBron wasn't part of those negotiations. So I don't know. And when you're speaking about a super team in Los Angeles currently, um, have you seen, Mr. Irving, have you seen the Lakers play without AD and LeBron? They're far from super. I mean, it shouldn't be a situation where, yeah, a super team shouldn't be in a situation where they basically fall off a cliff when two of their players are injured. Now, two are their best players. And I'm not saying that those teams should be able to continue to roll on. I mean, how great would Boston be during the year they won a championship if Paul Pierce and Kevin uh, Garnett were injured? Or how great would have the Miami Heat team been if Dwayne Wade and Chris Bosh would have been injured? How great would it have been if LeBron and Kevin Love would have been injured when they returned to Cleveland? All of these super teams, you know, you're speaking about, yeah, I mean, you know, you need the talent to win. But also, as I mentioned before, I don't know if I would call this Los Angeles Laker team a super team. And if it's a super team, it's based on two guys. So you might say they're a, he put together fantastic dynamic duos, if you want to say that. But I would, I would not call this Los Angeles Lakers team a quote-unquote super team. But, hey, man, I'm not here to... Um, downgrade. I'm not here to lambast. I'm not here to make fun. I'm not here to disagree. I mean, it's his opinion. And you take a look at the first team that Mr. Irving was talking about. Yeah, I can see that. Oscar Robertson's one of the greatest players of all time. Jerry West, one of the greatest shooting guards of all time. Wilt Chamberlain, one of the greatest big men of all time. Elgin Baylor, the forerunner, the father of what the modern NBA basketball player looks today from a win situation. Bill Russell, the greatest winner in sports, 11 championships in 13 years. I don't I don't see where that's outrageous. I don't see where that's ridiculous. I don't see where that's, you know, senile-ish. The second team, Magic, 
greatest point guard, arguably. Michael, greatest player, arguably. Larry, one of the greatest power forwards. Carl Malone, one of the greatest uh, uh, power forwards. Larry Bird, one of the greatest players. Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, strong, arguably one of the greatest, if not the greatest basketball player. The greatest player who's had a basketball career, if you uh, take into account high school, college, and pro. So I, I don't know where I don't know exactly where Julius Irving is way off base with this. Now maybe we could quibble about the reason LeBron is on the third team, but I mean you know has LeBron been as successful? Has LeBron been as great as Bill Russell or a Kareem Abdul-Jabbar? Has he been just as impactful in influence? And influential on the game is Elgin Baylor. Yeah. But, as, but, you know, but also, Julius Serving is a guy who grew up watching these guys. He grew up uh, idolizing Elgin Baylor, Bill Russell, Will Chamberlain. Some of these guys were his friends. So some of these guys are his uh, compadres, his contemporaries. So, you know, and Julius has also been one of these guys who has always stated, you know, we need to get today's public more involved and more aware of what happened in the NBA before Larry and Michael and Magic came into the league. I mean, he was one of those where it's kind of like, why aren't we showing more clips? Why aren't we showing more uh, videotapes? Why aren't we giving more love? Why aren't we showing more respect? Why aren't we talking more about the pioneers, the folks who built this game to where it is right now? Why are we ignoring the Oscar Robertsons? Why are we ignoring the Bill Russells? Why are we not giving a certain amount of respect to Will Chamberlain? Why are we not giving more love to Elgin Baylor? So... Julius Irving was, has been um, a strong advocate for that. And, you know, in his first and second team, at least he didn't put himself on there. So, you know, I, it's all relative. I mean, I'm not going to – how in the hell are you going to sit there and say Oscar Robertson is not one of the greatest players of all time or Will Chamberlain or Bill Russell or Magic or Larry or MJ or Kareem? I mean, you know, it's, it's, all, it's all based on one's – Thoughts and opinions and definitions of what an MVP, what a great player is all about. Are we talking about championships? Are we talking about numbers? Are we talking about influence? Are we talking about long-lasting impact? What are we talking about here? What are we? Where, where are we going with this? So you know, style of play, era that they played in. You know, that you could use those statistics. You could use those avenues. You can use all of that. Uh, criteria and put it anywhere you want. I'm not going to, uh, especially someone like Julius Irving, who's uh, an all-time legend and an all-time great. You're going to, you, you think I'm going to sit there and uh, criticize Dr. J for who he thinks his first and second teams should be. That's his thoughts and opinions. I don't even entertain it when people are talking about, well, Wendell, who's your all-time greatest five? I don't know, man. I don't, I don't go there. I don't do that because again, how do I, how do I put Oscar in, in the equation with a uh, Russell Westbrook or with a LeBron or with a Dwayne Wade? Where, where would I put Jerry West? Where would I put Kobe Bryant? Where would I put Kareem? Where would I if if I'm going to have an all if I'm going to have a greatest team starting five, or whatever? I can't have Will Chamberlain and Bill Russell in my starting five because both of those guys are center centers. I can't have Wilt Chamberlain, Bill Russell, and Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, even if I was putting together a team. Put together your squad of the greatest players who's ever played. I can't have Wilt, Bill Russell, and Kareem Abdul-Jabbar 
all on my same team. I can't do it. Because all of those guys are awesome. All of those guys are legends. All of those guys are great. So who am I going to sit? Who am I going to start? Who's going to get the most minutes? Who's going to be in crunch time? I mean, all of this stuff, all of this stuff goes into play. And just thinking about that nonsense give me a, gives me a headache. Will, Bill, Kareem, three of the greatest players who ever played. So where do we equate that? How do we equate that? That's up for you to decide. That's up for me to decide. That's up for your buddies to decide. That's good stuff for the barbershop and everything else. So good for them. Good for them. But Mr. Irving, Julius Irving, one of the pioneers himself, the MJ before MJ, the LeBron before LeBron, you have my respect, man. So whatever your uh, all NBA first, second, third, fourth, eighth, 10th, 20th teams are, no criticism from me. From me, you only get my respect. Wendell's World in Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. Last segment of the program. Last segment of the podcast. Hope everybody's doing well. Hope everybody is doing fantastic. Hope everybody is just swell. Um, <clears throat> I mentioned before in the first part of my podcast today, as I was recording this, that I was speaking about ending um, the greatest domestic threat to our nation, which are police departments, which I like to call um, domestic terrorists. That's that's uh, what I call them. And we're speaking about what are the biggest threats, what's going to be the best possibility to bring the best chance for real, sincere, honest, and meaningful change and true police reform in this country. You know, we saw what happened with the decision, with the verdict of Derek Chauvin and the situation, what happened to George Floyd and the whole movement of uh, Black Lives Matter and I guess you could say the woke movement if you want to be goofy, if you want to be uh, silly about it. But what happened in this country, what happened to the likes of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Mamadou Diallo, Eric Gardner, Michael Brown, Tamir Rice, Freddie Gray, Alton Sterling, Rashad Brooks, Sandra, Sandra Bland, and on and on. And on when it comes to domestic terrorists known as police officers being being discriminated against, being murdered, having their civil rights being violated by police officers, or I should say domestic terrorists posing as police officers. You know, that's 
the the situations in terms of those people murdering black folks and then getting away with it, that's not going to uh, cause this country, cause this nation to have true police form. Because after all, you have to remember the country that we live in. I'm, I'm tired of calling it the United States because in so many ways we're not united at all whether it be based on race, whether it be based on gender, whether it be based on political affiliation. There's so many things that we're divided on. There's so many things right now where we're not seeing eye to eye and and folks don't even want to get to the point where they want to educate themselves to understand where the other side is coming from. There's some folks who are so privileged. There's one group of folks who are so privileged that it taints their intelligence. It, 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 It pains them in such ignorance that they don't want to listen to when the other folks are explaining, this is the reason why we act like we do. This is the reason why we act out like we do when things like this happen. They want to go and listen to their race-baiting asshole trolls like Sean Hannity and Laura Ingram and Rotten Hell, Lush Limbaugh and Fox News and Tucker Carlson and Michael Savage and the rest of these race-baiting assholes and they want to listen and they want to elect uh, fools and con men and women like Marjorie Taylor Greene and Ted Cruz and Josh Hawley and Louis Gomer and Dan Patrick and Ron DeSantis. You know, idiots who don't know any better. Or folks who, who are just playing the fools. You know, people who are still so stupid and don't realize what they're doing. They're going to vote for them anyway. So, you know, we have that portion of our country to where a situation which happened with uh, which happened to George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Alton Sterling, Sandra Brand, uh, Bland, Rashad Brooks, so on and so forth, is not going to have them move the needle to where it's like, wow, we need really police reform. We need to rethink, retrain, re-educate, re-philosophize our thoughts and feelings about what police officers really are. Those folks are too ignorant. Those folks are too privileged. Those folks are too uneducated. Those folks don't live in a world where they have to deal with the folks on the other side of town, whether it be on the black side of town, Hispanic side of town, Asian side of town. You know, we still have these idiots up there still being, we have folks still attacking Asians because they're so ignorant. They're so stupid. The fact that they believe that somehow, some way, Asian Americans are responsible for the COVID virus being in this country. yes. Another example of how we're the stupidest country, stupid, uh, stupidest group of people walking this planet. So it's a matter of what can be done. What can happen? What can turn the corner again to where we have the opportunity for honest, meaningful change and true police reform in this country? It won't be the situation what happened to the numerous upon numerous upon numerous upon numerous of black folks. It what happened to Karen Gardner or Garner, excuse me. Karen Gardner was a 73 year old white woman, five feet ancient, five feet tall. She weighs 80 pounds who suffers from dementia. She lives in Loveland, Colorado and was the victim of an assault in battery attack from two domestic terrorists posing as police officers. A 73-year-old, 5-feet-tall, 
80-pound woman suffering from dementia who was assaulted and attacked by two domestic assholes posing as police officers. A 73-year-old woman, five feet inches tall, weighing 80 fucking pounds, suffering from dementia. Are you fucking kidding me? Are you fucking kidding me? You two fucking bastards. You two fucking assholes. Five feet tall, 73 pounds, uh, 73-year-olds, 80 pounds, and suffering from dementia. Evil domestic terrorists. Their names? Austin Hop, Daria Jalali or something like that, and Philip Metzler. Messler, you three fucking assholes. You three fucking assholes. You cowards. You spineless, gutless cowards. Put away your baton. Put away your taser. Put away your gun. Come to my face and I'll say that straight to your face. You are spineless, gutless cowards. 73-year-old woman suffering from dementia, five feet tall and weighing 80 pounds. You had to assault this woman. Evil, man. Fucking evil. Evil. So what happened was Hop approached Gardner on June 26th of last year after Walmart employees called police to report that Gardner tried to walk out of the store with $13 worth of merchandise. Number one, you're really going to call the police over 13 bucks? Really? Store employees made Garner leave the merchandise at the store. Garner's family said they believe Garner forgot to pay for the items and was confused. Officers confronted Garner while she was walking home. In-body camera video provided by Silky Hop can be seen telling Garner to stop. She shrugs her shoulders and continues walking. As Gardner repeatedly tells the officer she's going home, Hop takes her to the ground and handcuffs her. After a struggle with Hop and a second officer, again, this woman is 73 years old, 5 feet tall, and weighs 80 pounds. After a struggle with Hop and a second officer identified in the suit as Dara Jalari, Garner is hogtied. Garner is hogtied at her ankles and forced into the police car. 73. Let's even forget the whole dementia thing. If we can. The woman is 73 years old. Five feet tall, and she weighs 80 pounds. And three of you, three of you evil domestic terrorist asshole bastards, the three of you have to take her to the ground, handcuff her, and hog tie her? She's 73 years old, five feet tall, and weighs 80 pounds. Three of you have to subdue her like that? Three of you? So in the video from the booking area, Hop can also be heard saying, I can't believe I threw a 73-year-old on the ground. After watching the footage of the arrest for several minutes, Jalari starts repeating, I hate this, to which Hop responds, responds, this is great and I love this. That's what this asshole says. Hey man, let me ask you a question. Are you married? Do you have kids? Does your wife know that you're a piece of shit? Does your wife know that you're a spineless, 
gutless coward? Did your kids know that daddy is an asshole? Do your kids know that their father is a piece of shit? That he's a fucking lowlife? That he's an evil bastard? That he's, he's a complete another scumbag? Did your kids know that that's what daddy is? Do your kids know that? Hey, the kids of Austin Hop, I need to tell you something. Your father is a fucking asshole. Your father is an evil piece of shit. I love it. This is great. I love it. Hog tying a 73-year-old woman. Hog tying, throwing her in the police car, taking her to the ground, handcuffing her. I love this. This is great. Tell me I'm being overdramatic. Tell me I'm being out of line. Tell me I'm being ridiculous. Tell me this. Tell me I'm making too much out of this. Tell me I'm being too uh, dramatic. Tell me I'm being too emotional. Tell me that. Tell me no big deal. Tell me. Tell me this woman should have stopped when the police officer said, tell me, tell me, show me where I'm being out of line here. Tell me where this guy, tell me how I'm going over the top by saying this guy's evil. Tell me where I'm going over the line where I'm saying this guy is a spineless, gutless, cowardly piece of shit. Tell me where I'm out of line. Tell me where I'm wrong. Tell me where I'm being ridiculous. Tell me where I'm being too hyperbolic. Tell me. I'm interested to hear this. I'm being too dramatic. I'm being too over-emotional. Tell me about this. I'm reading a story about a woman with dementia who's 73 years old who has been hogtied. And the guys are up there laughing. And one guy's up there laughing about this, talking about how great this is. Tell me. Tell me I'm just being overdramatic. Please. I'm, I'm waiting for someone to tell me that. Tell me this is no big deal. Austin Hop said it was a good idea to handcuff Garner to a bench inside the station. He appeared to mimic her and laugh. Tell me I'm being dramatic. Tell me I'm just taking this out of context. Tell me where I'm just, you know, I'm, I'm being overly dramatic about this. Tell me. Tell me where it's wrong for me to call this guy an asshole. Tell me where, tell me, tell me where I'm out of line calling this guy evil. Tell me that it's wrong for me to tell his kids, or I wish I could have told his kids, how fucking evil and a piece of shit and a scumbag their father are. Tell me that I'm being out of pocket, out of line, for me to wishing that I could tell his wife, why did you marry a piece of shit like this guy? Do you realize that he's a piece of shit? Do you condone this behavior? Or it's like, you know what? I'm just attracted to pieces of shit. I'm attracted to men who treat women this way. I'm attracted to men. I love men who treat 73-year-old women who are five feet tall and weigh 80 pounds. I love this. This is what I look for in a man. This is my guy. This is the man who I want raising my children. This is the man who I want giving my children lifelong lessons. A guy who likes, who thinks it's great, who absolutely loves handcuffing, brutalizing 73-year-old women who are five feet tall and weigh 80 pounds and suffer from dementia. Tell me where I'm wrong. Tell me that I'm being over, over dramatic. Now, maybe, I don't know. No, 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 no. I want to keep with my original thought. I'm not going to LeBron and delete the tweet. No, this, 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 this motherfucker is a piece of shit. And for everybody in the Loveland Police Department, save it. I don't want to hear your bullshit. I don't want to hear you, this is the bad guy. I don't want to hear you, well, you know, this is one bad apple. I don't want to hear that, you know, the, the majority of the department would never do this. I don't want to hear that this is horrible and this is terrible. I don't want to hear it because this bullshit lasted for a fucking year. You got to do about this guy. The other, the, the, this happened right here in front of you. 
Don't, don't tell me about this is terrible, this is horrible, this is not reflective of the, the, the police department. I don't want to hear any of that shit. You condone this bullshit. You put on that uniform, you condone this bullshit. Because it took a year in video for this shit to come out. The only reason why it came out was because of a video. It wasn't because a police found religion. It wasn't because one of the people in the police department had a conscience. It wasn't because one of the people on the blue line of Loveland decided to have some character and have some heart and have morals. No, it wasn't because of that. There was no officer that came and said, hey, you know what, what uh, Officer Hop and the rest of those two guys did were wrong and this needs to be corrected and this needs to be dealt with because we can't have someone like this in our community with a badge and a gun or in, in any other type of weapon. We can't have that. None of the other police officers thought this was a big enough deal. So basically, fuck all you guys. I don't want to hear your bullshit. I don't want to hear your nonsense. I don't want to hear you guys come to anybody's defense. I don't want to hear that bullshit. You guys supported. You guys kept quiet. You guys didn't give a shit about this motherfucker. And you have a 73-year-old woman with dementia who's basically whose life is over. The aggressive arrest not only put Karen Garner in a hospital but also drastically worsened her dementia symptoms. Her family said in an interview Monday speaking publicly for the first time that Garner barely communicates now. Her family placed her in an assisted living facility in August because they no longer believed she would be safe living alone. Her daughter-in-law, Shannon Stewart, told the Denver Post she hasn't come back the way she was before. It was too much. And prior to the arrest, her grandmother... Miss Gardner lived in her own apartment within eyesight of her daughter's backyard and happily followed a daily routine. And then after the arrest, she barely communicates and her anxiety forces her into bouts of pacing and hand wringing. This is the way this poor woman is going to spend the rest of her life because of these two motherfuckers, including this, this, this clown who felt it was great, who felt it was wonderful, and then mimicked her and mocked her as they had her handcuffed. Like, like some fucking common criminal. And all of this started after she, because of her dementia, walked out of Walmart with $13 worth of, worth, worth of merchandise. 13 fucking dollars. This all started over 13 fucking dollars. 13 fucking dollars. Her life is ruined over a bad, evil, domestic terrorist and 13 fucking dollars. Gardner has never been able to tell them what happened the day of her arrest. When her family picked her up from the hospital, the family said she repeated, why did they hurt me? Oh, I'm sorry. You know, when they um, arrested her and such, they broke her arm. They broke her arm. (laughs) You know, and I mentioned before, all of this started if this woman was black, what would be the excuses? If this woman was black, what would be the excuse, Candace Owens? If this woman was black, what would be the excuse? How would you excuse the behavior of the police, Paris Denard? What would you say to say, yeah, he shouldn't have done that, but if the woman was black, what would you say? How would you put that in context, Michael Savage? Mark Levin, Mark Levine, or Levin, whatever the fuck your name is. 
Tucker Carlson. Well, how would you, how would you, uh, how would you paint this picture? How would Joe Biden be responsible for this, uh, Sean Hannity? How would BLM be really responsible for what happened to Ms. Gardner if she was black? Tucker Carlson. How would the black community be responsible for this, Candace Owens? How how would you how would you put that in context? So your minions, and so the idiots who listen to you and believe in you would, would say, well, you know, what 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 would have happened? Let me guess. Um, well, her children, if she had dementia, then what is she doing living by herself? If her dementia is that bad to where she would walk out of Walmart with merchandise that she didn't pay for, why was she in Walmart by herself and without anybody with her if she has dementia? This is an unfortunate thing that happened, but why are they having her live by herself if she has dementia? Why was she in assisted living before this happened? See, now if this woman was black, that would be the that would be the storyline. That would be the playbook. That would be the narrative that those fucking assholes on the other side would come up with. Terrible, horrible, feel for her, but before we crucify the police officer who broke her fucking arm and mimicked her and laughed at her. And tell her and told how wonderful and great it was. Before we go ahead and chastise him, let's go ahead and say, hey, you know what? I mean, you know, in the world that we have today with BLM and Antifa and the far left, I mean, you know, something like this was bound to happen. In the Biden administration, you got to remember when Kamala Harris was the AG over in California, you know, she passed this and she did that and this, that, and the other. And that led to what happened to Miss Gardner. Terrible that it may seem, but, you know, hey, uh, uh, Miss Gardner, sorry, but you know Kamala Harris, her hands are dirty too. How would you play this out, Sean Hannity? For the idiots and the fools and the jackasses who believe the Sean Hannitys and the Tucker Carlsons, would you believe that bullshit that they put that they gave you? I know a lot of you would. So for a black woman, that would be the case, and we move on. <laughs> Moving on to the next story. Moving on to how. China is going to infiltrate our country and Joe Biden is going to let it happen. No, back back to selling bullshit to the to the idiots in Jerkwater USA. But now since this woman is white, now all of a sudden now it's like, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Hold on for a second. Now, because of the color of our skin, we can kind of accept the fact that the black folks get their ass whooped. I mean, we can kind of go ahead and make any kind of excuse that we want to because of it, because, you know, us being white, you know, we're never going to be pulled over and assaulted or murdered or have our civil rights violated because of of the color of our skin. And even if that did happen, if a black officer pulled us over and treated us like, I don't know, black people, because we are white, uh, we would have due justice come our way and that black person would face the consequences of his illegal action. So we don't have to worry about that nonsense. Now, all of a sudden, and we're speaking about this could happen to a 73-year-old woman in Loveland, Colorado, 73-year-old woman, white woman, suffering from dementia, five feet tall, 80 pounds, and nothing happens. Now, all of a sudden, white folks start getting a little bit concerned. White folks now start getting a little bit scared because all of a sudden now, it might be a situation where, heaven forbid, we're being treated like a common black person. You see, for a lot of white folks, especially those who are ignorant enough to follow the Fox News bubble or the right far right wing nonsense and believe that bullshit, 
Here's the problem. Here's the biggest fear that they have. The biggest fear for white people in that space, in that culture, in that belief system is to be in a country where they're being treated like black people. Oh shit. Now we've got some issues. Now all of a sudden, driving while black also could mean driving while white. All of a sudden now, what happened to George Floyd? What happened to Sandra Bland? What happened to um, Mamadou Diallo? What happened to Ahmaud Arbery? What happened to all of these guys? Jogging while black, thinking while black, sleeping while black, outside of a Starbucks while black, looking at someone mean while black. All of a sudden now, we, we start taking off the white, excuse me, start taking off the black and then insert the white. All of a sudden now, if some of those instances would happen to Freddie Gray, what happened to George Floyd, and what happened to the, all Tamir Rice and such, if all of a sudden those instances start happening to white folks, now all of a sudden, now we start talking about police reform. Now we start talking about something needs to change. Now we start talking about something needs to happen. Now we start talking that bullshit. Before it would be like, well, you know, no, no, no. Now if it starts happening to white folks, all of a sudden now it's going to be like, shit, now we really do need some reform. Breaks my heart. Breaks my heart when I watched that video. And I could only watch it once because I had tears in my eyes. Because I know folks, I have someone very close to me with dementia. We all know folks with dementia. We all have been around people with dementia. We all know someone, a loved one, somebody that we care about who has dementia. And how would you like to have that person that you cared about? How would you like to have that family member? How would you like to have your grandmother? How would you like to have your sister? How would you like to have your mother? How would you like to have your wife being treated like that? How would you like that to happen? If an officer treated your mother that way, suffering from dementia, treated your father, treated your uncle, treated your grandfather that way. If that fucking police officer treated your relative like that, who's suffering from dementia, would you be cool? Would you be calm? Would you be understanding? Would you say, well, cops had a tough job, you know, too bad? Would you do that? I don't think you would. Don't think you would. And when I saw that video, the first thing I thought about was the person who I love dearly and is suffering from dementia. And I pictured that person in that same situation. And they couldn't hold me back, man. That's some shit like that happened to me. They wouldn't be able to hold me fucking back. They wouldn't be. I don't know what would happen. Maybe that guy would whoop my ass. Maybe I would get tased and shot. I don't know. But the state I would be in mentally, I would be so angry, out of control. If something like that happened to uh, the person I know and love with dementia, there'd be no holding me back. There would be no fucking holding me back. I would not be able to live. I would not be able to function until I would be able to get my fucking hands on that guy. Or at least at the very least confront that guy. I wouldn't. I wouldn't be able to do it. I wouldn't be able to function. So, <sighs> great way to end the podcast, huh? Shit. But, uh, yeah, my whole point to that story is, I hate to say this, but unfortunately, for us to truly get true justice and really some accountability and justice for all, it's going to have to start with a few more instances like this. So, I hate to say it, but then the next time... So white folks are, I don't know, being treated like black folks. Let's go. Next time a 
white officer forgets who he's dealing with and he starts treating a white person like he's black. Hey man, let's go ahead and let's blow that shit up. Let's go ahead and just kind of like shove that down our throats because white folks don't want to hear about Sandra Bland. They don't want to hear about Trayvon Martin. They don't want to hear about any of that shit because it ain't going to be happening to them because of their perceived privilege of their skin color. Now all of a sudden that shit starts happening to folks who look like them, the same skin tone as them. Yeah, we start marching for that. I don't mind burning and looting shit for that because anything that gets done in this country, mostly it deals when it has when it happens to white folks. So there you go. All right, I'm out of here. Sam Cook, change is going to come. Change has got to come. A change it will come. Don't know if it's going to happen in my lifetime. Probably not. But, you know, we got to keep moving. We got to keep moving forward. Love, peace, unity, understanding. We got to do it, man. We got to do it. Until next time, music. But I know change gonna come.